0: You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Chloe Foster and with me live in the studio this morning are two plant genii. I would like to introduce to you Stephen Ryan of Dixonia Rare Plants, expert on all types of plants, an all-round lovely man, and Greg Balderson, another lovely human being, a bulb grower and fungi expert. Welcome to the Macedon Rangers, boys, this morning. <laughs> 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 it is
1: sort of that way, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yes, Yeah, 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 yeah. dearie me. Was it Misty... Uh, oh and yes, as well. Yeah, yeah so fairly yes. misty coming down. coming down. Yeah. yeah, so quite a romantic drive down it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kept looking for Heathcliff to come running across the highway. <laughs> <laughs> All you saw was Kate. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, yeah, misty sort of morning. I don't mind those mornings. The ones I get frightened of when we're go- coming down to 3CR early in the morning is when there's been a frost. Yes. Because yes. that colder freeway is a nightmare, especially at that frosty. hour of the morning too. when it's, oh, it, it's worst. At, yeah, at, uh, cars sliding off the freeway yeah. and yeah pretty frightening stuff. Yeah, well,
0: you've got the frost warning lights every yeah. time I go up the quarter, which isn't very often, but yeah, there's oh, yeah. serious well, enough Especially to have those the warning
1: bridges lights. near Gisborne. Uh, the they just freeze over mm. and I've seen cars go sliding off those. It's mm. really quite frightening. Do mm. you so. get
0: a lot of heavy um, mists at this time of year in oh, yeah. winter? S- especially
1: down imagine. in the in the gully where, again, Gisborne. Uh, yeah. It tends to settle down into the Gisborne gully there, and so the whole place can be shrouded in this white um, mist. It's quite mm. amazing. I, I think
2: one of the most beautiful things that you can see in the Macedon Ranges too is the sun rising over a mist filled valley between Mount Macedon and the Cobors and oh. you've just got hanging rock poking out of the mist. <laughs> yes. oh, so wow. if, you're up at, if you're up at Camel's Hump on Mount Macedon looking north you, it's like a sea of cloud with, yeah. uh yeah, hanging rock just sort of coming up out of the mist like an island. That yeah. would be just And that's stunning. pretty special.
1: You can see <laughs> Miranda at the top. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh uh, dear yes no it can be lovely and, and it's one of those things that if you live in an area like we do uh, you've got to like the misty days because mm. it, it yeah. could be depressing to people who love their sunshine because it would
0: hang around in winter oh it can mm. yeah, yeah.
1: Um, in fact I used to be a gardener in a couple of the big gardens on Mount Macedon and one of the ones I used to work in is a garden called Glen Rannick and it's in a sort of a valley that faces almost due south,
2: so it sees almost no winter light at all. Mm. The sun rises at 10 and sets yeah. at 2. Yeah, that's it, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and And the mist tends to sort of sit over the top of you. Now, it can be very romantic when you see it once, but if you're living with it all the time, you've got to like it, because yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've had several people that have owned some of those properties up there that just couldn't cope after mm. yeah. a while. Uh,
2: but they can look gorgeous in the mist. Oh, oh and the native forest up there, too. Oh, like, beautiful. walking through the forest up there in the mist and looking up to the canopy when you can just see the tops through the through the mist it's just sort of a silhouette mm. Mm. Well, and yeah it's very probably at its best yeah. is this time of the year the forest up there
0: yeah well flipping over to the Dandenong Ranges when I used to work at Karanga nursery uh, we had what what we used to call um, the Mount Evelyn mist <laughs> <laughs> and we just have this like heavy misty fog that just yeah. used to hang around all day, yeah. Karanga's in a bit of a gully, mm. and it would just get stuck there and never move, yeah. and we're just permanently <laughs> stuck in a moist good, mist.
1: Yeah, good climate to grow native ferns. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, I don't
0: know how most of the plants that we that we had there survived yeah. that winter.
1: Well, your Western Australian natives would have gone. Where the hell are we? <laughs> so they would just
0: like get me out of here. Ah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But anyhow, look, the weather is what it is. We've had good rains this winter. I, yes. I've got no complaints. Uh, I was cleaning out a section of my garden this week seeing as with lockdowns and sundry other things I haven't been able to open the nursery Um, and so I've been going up in the mornings doing a few chores at the nursery and then going home and spending the rest of the afternoon in the garden Mm. which has been actually quite good fun in some ways and there was a section of my garden that had sort of been ignored it was sort of a back corner um, and there's a birdhouse there and, and it's this quite big broad border behind the birdhouse and it had this huge old buddleia in it that threw about 10 flowers a year. Oh. And, and it had a, <laughs> it an oak in it that the possums had actually killed. Um, Unfortunately, it was the rare golden oak, so I was really peeved, mm-hmm. but anyhow, the <laughs> possums had killed it and there was no way to keep them out of the tree. And there was a whole pile of suckering carrier in there, which is one of these little shrubs that suckers all over the place and has a massive yellow flowers in the late winter. and It's very cheery when it's in flower, mm-hmm. but it had taken over a huge area because mm. just it just sucked further and further and I just ignored it. And because my opening, which was meant to be a couple of weeks ago during the last lockdown, didn't happen,
3: yes.
1: <coughs> I've had this rush of blood. <laughs> Chainsaw came out, Budlier went down, <laughs> yep. uh, Oak got taken down and I've got this huge, big, vacant border that I've been Ooh. digging over. Uh, I've left some of the carrier there but I've pulled it back. Yep. Uh, and... So now I'm paralysed by choice almost because I've got this great big vacant space yeah, and yeah. a heap of stuff I'd like to plant. You've got mm. a blank
0: canvas. Oh, it is. So oh,
1: yeah. uh, it's been a weird sort of thing trying to work out what I'm going to, put in this area mm. but so far uh, installed have been two dwarf moroccan fan palms of the gray foliaged form right. which is a lovely little dwarf palm that gets multiple trunks from the bottom so it makes a mound yep. uh, with this wonderful intense silver foliage and takes me back to morocco believe it or not <laughs> um and a conifer from new guinea malaysia um all through that sort of Archipelago, one of the one of the Decritiums, Uh imbricatus, which mm. is quite a rare conifer in this is that country. A high altitude one? Uh, yeah, it comes from up in the mountains, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it seems to be fairly cold hardy, yeah.
2: even though it comes from tropical. Parts. It's, it's weird though. The like the Mexican stuff that's from high up altitude, and it grows here okay as long as you give it a bit of water in, yeah. in the summer. Yeah. It's almost exactly the same climate as we have, except they get the summer rainfall, of course, instead yeah. of the winter one. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. So I planted that, and I have put in a couple of other evergreens for on the back
1: of it because um, the. There's a wire fence and it looks straight into my woodshed from the back, so <laughs> <laughs> trying to screen the woodshed out. Um, and, yeah, it's great fun. I'm really enjoying it.
0: I find it really hard when you've got a blank canvas in your own garden yeah. to choose. Oh, yeah. Because for a client or a friend or whatever, you're like, oh, yeah, just put this in. Just yeah. chuck that in. It'll look really great. But yeah. for when it's your own garden... You, uh, there's so many options. And, of
1: course, the thing <laughs> is... the so more you, yeah, I love. Yeah, well, the more you know about them, the, the longer it takes to make up your mind yeah. because you've got this far bigger store of information in your head. Mm. I had exactly the same problem, believe it or not, with the Macedon Cemetery. Um, they had a big gum tree uh, they took down because yeah. uh, an arborist had said it was dangerous, and that's where the Ryan family plots are. Mm. And we'd selected our family plots there because it was a lovely big shady tree. Uh, so... Uh, I don't know, the Cemetery Trust was very impressed with me when I said to them, what did you do? And they said, oh, we took it down because it was dangerous. And I said, who do you kill in the cemetery? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That that didn't go down well. But anyhow, they gave me permission to plant a tree and it took me about four years to make a final decision because it needed to be something that was going to cope with pretty poor soil because down in the Macedon Cemetery Mm. it's awful gravelly clay, Uh, so it's going to have to cope with that even if I can do a bit of soil preparation to start with. Um, Obviously in a public space, so it needs to be hardy. It needed to be something that would fit into the the overall look of the cemetery um, and I wanted to plant something that was comparatively rare with the idea that in 100 years the National Trust will whack a classification on my tree and I'll never be able to take it down again uh, and, and I also wanted something with autumnal colour I felt because you know Macedon is good for its autumn colour and so forth so in the end I decided on a Japanese oak uh, Quercus dentata which gets the biggest leaf in the genus Oh, wow. And it's a really handsome oak, uh, but it took me four years to make a decision because there was just yeah. so many choices I could make.
0: Was it hard to source it or do you... No, no, out? I had them in stock. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, yeah. Yes, I had, I had
1: some quite nice ones that were about a metre and a half in stock. Yeah. Um, so I just took one of those down and the guy that digs the plots down there he was gorgeous he said oh do you want me to dig you a hole and I said oh fantastic because <laughs> the soil really <laughs> awful so I got down there and he dug this crater so <laughs> like you wouldn't believe you with here. the backhoe yeah, yeah. I could have just jumped straight in
2: was it reta- rectangular
1: no it wasn't rectangular <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> funnily enough yeah. uh, so I then had to bring down a whole pile of potting mix and compost and stuff to help fill the hole mm-hmm. so, because he'd done this enormous <laughs> hole so I mixed the, some of the clay back and 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 Put all the compost and stuff in and the oak tree settled in quite well. I'm hoping this year it's really going to hit its straps.
2: Mm. I always surprised how beautiful the colour on those are. You sort of, cause you, the, I've always sort of dentata as just because of the big leaf yeah. and the, and the fluffy sort of fresh foliage on it. And you sort of, it's one of those ones where you, you don't, well, I'd never thought of it as an autumn coloured tree mm. so much mm. and then it colours up and you think, actually that's, like, oh. that's holding its yeah. Yeah. own yeah. pretty I much anything. Yeah, well, either. there's a good, quite a nice young dentata in the Melbourne Botanic
1: Gardens in the oak lawn. Okay. Uh, it's not one of the really big trees in the garden. And it's funny because even though it has the biggest leaf in the genus, it's not actually one of the biggest growing oaks. So it's a more moderate-sized oak and would, in fact, mm. be quite a good oak for even an average sized garden mm. I would have thought. Yeah. The only issue with it is, and it's something that some people don't like, is like the pin oak's inclined to hold its dead leaves in the winter for a fair while. Mm. So you've got the dead leaves they hanging do. on it. Mm. Yeah. And I don't mind it because it's just a different colour in the in the landscape. Yep. So I'm happy to accept that. But a lot of people dislike that dead leaf look. It,
2: it's really good in a good setting. Like if it's if it's in amongst other trees I think it looks great. Yeah. I thought a cemetery leaves. was a great great place for <laughs> dead leaves to hang around.
1: <laughs> Uh, Just teeming with the theme. Yes, that's right, exactly. Uh, Actually, I remember somebody who did a talk for us at the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society uh, some years ago, uh, Kevin Walsh, and he was at the time in charge of most of Melbourne's um, suburban cemeteries Mm. uh, and their horticultural side of it. And he said one of the weirdest plants he's ever seen planted in a cemetery was the dragon arum, Dracunculus vulgaris. Who would plant something with these dark purple flowers (laughs) (laughs) and smell of carrion? Uh, In that a cemetery. Sounds, that sounds enjoying? perfect.
2: <laughs> yeah. Now that you say that, I think I might leave. Uh, tell Holly that once I go, yeah, she, she can wants plant some Dracanicals to on top of you. And some Helicodocerous as well. Yeah, well, why not indeed? <laughs> uh, actually, you guys just
0: reeled off two big botanical oh, names. Sorry. Tell us the common the, the names.
2: Dead Horse arums, a Helicodocerous, the, which right. looks like a... Pretty much like a dead pig's bottom, really. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's it is. And smells probably as bad.
1: and you know how yeah. most arum type things have a spadix, the big sort of, or spathe, I should say, the big bit at the back? Yeah. Um, in the case of that particular plant, it sits out across the ground, Instead oh. of sticking up, right. So you've got this thing that sort of sits out that way, and it, it's all prickly and hairy, and and it's got coarse hair. It, it, it looks does like look an like, animal's bottom. Yeah,
2: it wow. is truly We're, weird. One thing I've noticed over the years too, when it opens, if you, if you smell it when it freshly opens, it smells like fresh mincemeat. Oh, and then within about twelve hours or so, the the beautiful sort of flesh pink colour of the flower will fade and get a greenish pale hue to it. Yeah. So like the, rotting meat. And yeah. at the same time, that fresh mincemeat smells, smells like, uh, turns into something like a bag of mincemeat left in a hot car for three days. Oh,
0: that blows my mind.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: We've Is just turned same... every
1: vegetarian
2: <laughs> off our <Yeah>. program.
3: <laughs>
0: Is it the same, co- I wonder if it's the same sort of chemical in the plant that's in the meat that makes them... The smell, the same smell. I, I, it's, I don't
2: know. The, the way it imitates it is so bizarre. that yeah. it, it starts off as smelling like fresh meat and then yeah. ends up smelling like Of fresh meat. course, the,
1: the, <laughs> the other one, the, the uh, Dracunculus vulgaris, which I love the name. Yes. <laughs> Dracunculus Dracunculus. Vulgaris. It yeah.
0: sounds like some like, disease. Yeah, it does. And, yeah.
1: Uh, and um, it erupts out of the ground with these rather weird, spotty phallic looking things. That's mm. when it first comes out of the ground. And then it gets this big purplish um, spate, uh, uh with a black spatic sticking up out of the middle um, and it pongs dreadfully Mm -hmm. but there are white and green flowered versions of it Mm, that come from Crete and when I was in Crete years ago I heard about this colour variance and we went up to the top of Mount Silerides which is the tallest mountain in Crete we hiked up to the top yeah you know feeling very full of our you know fitness and so forth and I got up to the top we did our bit we saw some crocus and we saw some other interesting flowers up the top and we were coming, and we came down and I was knackered I was completely <laughs> exhausted and we got into the car and we had to drive down this sort of windy gravel road and we're driving along and I saw some fricunculus but the back of the flowers up on a bank above me and I, I turned around to my partner Craig and said I think we need to stop and have a look And so I got out of the car and I struggled up the bank. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was so tired. And then I got out into this, um, it was basically an olive grove. And the whole olive grove was full of dracunculuses. And they were every colour from the darkest of blacks through sort of burgundies to sort of almost browns. And then there was a whole range of whites and green ones with yellow Mm spadixes and mauve markings through them. And so I did a smell test Mm -hmm. around this area. Mm -hmm. Brave, very brave. It was brave. Um, And, of course, the darker ones did have that rotting meat smell. But, funnily enough, the pale ones smelt more like rotting fruit. Oh. It was really weird. And the the
2: soromatums are often more, which is another type of stinky aroid that does a similar thing. Yeah. And they smell like, um, the one I had anyway, smelt more like uh, a rotting compost heap but with fruit in it like a fruity sort of rotting yeah. fruity smell yeah
1: yeah so yeah so obviously these plants are developing and changing their their techniques a bit, yeah. uh, and perhaps filling a new niche uh yeah. who knows so anyhow i've got some seedlings of the white and green ones oh, in the garden sure. at home not mm. that i bought the seed back but i got it from somebody else who had obtained seed years ago marcus harvey yeah, the i was, was going to say marcus used to yeah. sell the whitish forms yeah of it. so i got a whole pile of seedlings <laughs> when he um passed away unfortunately mm. and so they're all coming up in the garden at the moment but i think. They're Another year away flowering,
0: but how long have you had them in the garden for? And do you uh, have to dig them up? What their... do you do to look after them? Yeah, just leave
1: them. <coughs> um, <coughs> this is, I think, their third year in the ground uh, from when I got the seedlings from uh, one of Marcus's friends who was distributing some of his material, and. Uh, they're looking reasonably vigorous this year, but they're still comparatively small. So I think there's at least another 12 months away yet before mm-hmm. they'll start to flower. And I'm hoping I'll get sort of a range of the colours. Yeah, that's the best thing from yeah. seeds, isn't it? Yeah. Well, actually,
2: speaking of Marcus's, that little, uh, one of the plants I bought in was a, a crocus, and it's one of the Cibari, uh species that he collected mm. from one of his travels. And that variation, like you're saying, you've got um, this batch of seed that I grew of his summer white, Some are purple, and then the one I've bought in is this beautiful white one with uh, dark purple splotches on the outer Mm. petals, and just the variation. Mm. Yeah, seed Mm. can be
1: really great fun. Seeds the best stuff
2: thing to grow something from because of that variation that you get. That sort of. Of course, it's not so good if you're trying to colour coordinate. No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or if you have OCD tendencies. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Oh my God, that one's not white. (laughs) <laughs> you a row of beautiful pink flowers and then there's one white in the middle. <laughs> I've
1: got a friend who probably won't be listening this morning, so it's probably safe. I sold him a hedge of white flowering quince, uh, conomalies. Yep. And one at the very end, somehow or another, a red one <laughs> They've gotten bundled oh, no. in. And fortunately, he's planted it right at the end. Yeah. But this whole hedge of white flowering quince and then right at the end, there's a red one. <laughs> and of course, they're in the ground for two or three years before they flower. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and it's so impossible we to get out too. Oh, to be huge job to dig it out. So we're living with it. Yes. <laughs> but he, he does say his lawyers are on the case. <laughs> so
2: one day we'll... advertise yeah.
0: advertising. Yeah. Oh,
1: look, it happens to the best of us. Yeah,
2: um, you just you know, it just does. Well, it's hard to tell when you, a, the leaves on those are identical. Yeah, you so you can really only tell them when they're flowering. And often it's, yeah. you know, they're not flowering stage by the time they... There's a Go sort out. of
0: classic example, like I teach a diploma unit, um, or I teach pests and diseases mm. um, at TAFE and it's a classic of scenario of a customer coming coming into retail nursery or asking you I have I put in all these carrots and there's one white one. Mm. Why why is there one white carrot and the rest of them are orange? And well the a parsnip it's a parsnip. A parsnip seed snuck Mm -hmm. into the carrot, and you can't tell because until it grows and gets advanced, (laughs) (laughs) so you got to eat the parsnip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're very nice (laughs) baked. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. So there you go. So we've Mm. gone off in all sorts of directions. We should do a couple of announcements.
0: Yeah, we've got two community announcements. Um, A big one first up. Mm -hmm. The National Herbarium of Victoria had a milestone. Oh, oh, yes, earlier it in on the this paper. Month. It was in the paper. There's been a me- media release going out. I suppose we want to shout out a bit of a congratulations to them this mm. morning. They catalogued their one millionth specimen. Goodness me. Now, what does that mean? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, it's hard to get your head around it for yeah. a start.
0: So the herbarium in, at the Melbourne Gardens, that big round building at the Botanic Gardens there, Houses, dried plants, dried plants stuck on pieces of cardboard, mm. essentially, and put into folders and put into a shelf. Mm. They have one million of them, or over one million of them. So they're going through the collection at the moment and databasing them, which is digitising them, so and photographing them, so that they can mm. be um, accessed by people all around yeah, the world.
1: Because, well, we can't go in there and put our grubby fingers all no. over the specimens, no, understandably. Yeah. So.
0: And they have just completed their one million. So this has been a big project that they've been working on for many years now, digitising the whole collection, and, yeah, one million yeah. specimens. And they've got
1: specimens there that date right back to banks and mm. all that sort of thing. It's, it's they, very important.
0: They found some a few years ago that predate, and this might go into our next topic, we'll get onto it later yeah. this morning, <laughs> that predate the binomial plant nomenclature yeah. system. So they had um, four... Oh, these so they specimens had the old-fashioned naming system in place. had four names attributed to it instead of just the two that we usually have these days. So even older than, or collected well, in the 1700s. Well, mid-1700s
1: yep. when Carl von Linn, which was his proper name, uh, right. uh, he Latinised his own name. Did he? yeah, so hence Linnaeus. <laughs> yes, how the efficacious ego, the, is that? Oh,
0: <laughs> the ego of the man. Yeah. Opinion. so everybody
1: thinks of him as Linnaeus <laughs> yes. now. But his name was Carl von Linn, and he was a Swede. And so yeah. the name Linnaeus... Linnaeus wouldn't have been a Swedish name, of course, at all. Right. So he had Latinised his own name, <laughs> um, which I mentioned on my YouTube channel uh, recently. I did one on plant naming. And so that was one of the things I mentioned as we were going along how this whole system started. Yep. So if they've got specimens that predate Linnaeus, that's pretty impressive.
0: Very mm. impressive. I don't think they knew they had them until they were going through with a fine-tooth comb and digitising all their specimens, mm. seeing what they've got. And they came across these. Well, one really would old assume ones. they weren't
1: Australian plants, potentially. They were not. Yeah.
0: They had come. That there's, they do have a global collection yeah. that was donated. I think it might have been part of von Mueller's or, or someone that, that yeah. von Mueller knew, yeah. and uh, it was it made its way to Melbourne somehow. You Who can't knows?
2: start a collection with one, can you? You have got to sort of get a. A small collection yeah. from somewhere else <laughs> yeah. to make yeah, yes, you can't start from point one and <laughs> <laughs> say, this is our first, is our and first. let's yeah. work towards yeah, yeah. a million. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's fungi in there too. Oh, yeah. Uh, nice. they, they keep fungi because I've recently made my first proper fungi collection oh. and now have a permit to collect from forests and things um, from, you know, public land. Now, um, I'm
1: assuming if you're collecting fungi, you're not drying them necessarily. Yeah, you are. You yeah, are yeah, drying them. Because yeah. I think a lot of them, they do them in um, spirits or something like yeah, that. So yeah,
2: some of them dry quite well, surprisingly. Yeah. I, so th- this first one that I collected, it was a species I wasn't familiar with um, over at uh, Glenline. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought the same thing. This is just going to go to mush and not be anything. And it's dried really well and it's still got its structure. It's just sort of curled over at the ends a little bit yeah. and faded a, from a white to a sort of a bony, you know, a bony yeah. cream sort of colour. Um, Did you
0: get a spore a spore the pattern? The whole lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really
2: interesting. I'm not very good at that stuff because I, I like sort of just going, oh, yeah, I've got enough, you know, I'll just photograph it and that'll be fine. Mm. Um, so to go through the whole process of... uh uh, describing it mm. with proper words <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and drawing a very basic picture of what I see, and, and, you know, dissecting it and taking a small vial with DNA sample mm. and drying some and taking photos and for size comparison, doing it properly and mm. laying it all out. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. That, so that's
0: a lot to do for one specimen. And that's just, one and of, so, one mushroom. You know,
2: a friend who's an actual mycologist and does this professionally, um, I, I've helped her collect specimens on quite a few occasions. And I'm going, get this one, get that one, get that one, get that one. Mm. And she's like, oh, I've got to process all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and now, now you know, know why. Yes. <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the limit's probably about three or four per outing, yep. uh, which is probably about two or three or four hours work. Because <laughs> <laughs> the botanic
0: to, gardens have the fungi map program as well, which is – Databasing and collecting a yeah. lot of the um, Victorian fungi. And
2: iNaturalist or Australia, uh, Atlas of Living Australia are really good ones too for plants, animals, and fungi and slime moulds and all sorts of things. Yeah, so, really good reference. So it's, they're good. Um, yeah. I usually download most of my sightings now onto iNaturalist because mm-hmm. it's a bit easier to use on the phone. Yep. But uh, yeah, any of those fungi map and. Um, and,
0: and that's where that information goes with all this databasing of this plant specimens and fungi specimens, it's like, okay, well, it goes onto a computer, but how can anyone access it? Mm. An Atlas of Living Australia yep. is one way that you can access that yep. information. And
2: internationally, iNaturalist, which yep. is an international one, and it uses the same – it's basically the same database, I think. Yep. Um, but the big thing about that is that uh, scientists actually use that information. Mm. So if, you, if you're into natural science and just being out and about, especially in native habitats – that uh that data that you collect just by taking some photos and being observant and remembering things mm. about what you've seen and where you saw it um, is actually really useful to scientists. It's 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 real data that you can collect yeah. and help out. Citi- uh, citizen science yeah, yeah. is yep. b- without the name technology. one after you eventually if you keep at
0: it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can see it now, some fungi with boldest an yeah. eye as the, yeah. as the species not. name. Oh come on. <laughs> Probably a dog vomit, but yeah. No. yeah. <laughs>
2: Actually, there's a cordyceps I've found, which is one of the little zombie funguses I found up in Mount Macedon. And I've never seen it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. and I'm, I, I probably isn't, but I'm sort of half wondering if that might be a new species. And, uh, well, you need to find it. So, well, I have to catalogue it. So yeah. if, if it does turn out to be a new species, but then you know I'll be the, the first one th- to do yeah, it. Yeah, but probably. you
0: know the convention, there's like an unwritten rule. I don't know whether it's a written rule or an unwritten rule, actually. Mm-hmm. You can't name something no. after yourself. No, you no, that's, that's I wouldn't just do full that of anyway. your own self impairment. Yeah, no. Somebody
2: <laughs> else has got a name it after you. Yeah, do you can that change anyway. your
0: name to m- make it more Latinised <laughs> if <laughs> you're Mr. Von Lim. <laughs> yes, yes.
2: You can still have a bit of fun naming <laughs> Yeah, you yeah. can. Yeah. it's uh, more fun uh, to name something else, you know, to name something that's not after yourself but have a bit of fun with <laughs> it.
0: Yeah. We'll get back to. Uh, uh, plant names in a moment, mm. you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Now, Stephen, there was another community oh, announcement yes, that yes. we have. Do now, you want to go for it? assuming
1: it goes ahead yes. with lockdowns and things, this is a big assumption at the moment, but the Yay Garden Expo... Um, is coming up on the uh, 18th and 19th of September at the Yay Sale Grounds. Yay! Yay, yes. I can't help it, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Adults are $10, children under 16 are free. Uh, Entry pay at the gate, or you can pre-book tickets uh, at Try Booking. Uh, Parking's free, open 9 to 3 p.m., uh, wheelchairs can get in, uh, there's a plant crash, dogs are allowed as long as they're on leash. Uh, there's going to be apparently 70-odd vendors, or 70 vendors that might be odd, mm. um, <laughs> and there's food available and all that sort of stuff. Um, now, um, uh, Ruben Neustieg, who's going to be out there with Neuestig Roses, has offered four free tickets of entry and what we need for people to do is to ring in and give us their postal address and the first four that ring in will get a free ticket and if they go out to the event, Reuben will then give them a free rose as well. So you get the free ticket to get in. Yep. Plus you'll get uh, your selection of a free rose once you get down the road. Rose there from plant or a rose plant, flower? Yes, plant. plant. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad you We've did that. We've got to sell this. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm glad you did that. Um, so, and newest eggs grow a really interesting array of heritage
2: oh, and old some fashioned of the roses. Best roses. aren't they They're Yeah. just, if you're after an interesting, especially the more species and, yeah, and, yeah, and sort of old fashioned ones yeah, and, just and stuff. Amazing stuff. Yeah, it's just
1: amazing. So, so, so the first four people who ring into um, this program, mm-hmm. so we better give them. The we phone will open number. up the lines in a yeah, second, yeah, yep. and uh, uh, they can put give the uh, uh, lovely ladies off air their name and postal address. I will take it back and then give it to da- uh, to um, Reuben. And he can then send out their free passes. Fantastic!
0: And so, so that is the Yay Garden Show, flower show.
1: Yes, that's the well, it's the Yay Garden Expo they call themselves. Yep. Uh, it's uh, run by one of the service clubs as a as a fundraiser for um, the district, um, and it's been going
2: for some years now. Only um, be going to the first one. Yeah, I was, I was at the inaugural one I think oh. when I still had my nursery, so that was. Uh, mm. A few years ago now. Yeah. And
1: <laughs> I remember going down as a guest speaker at some stage, but that would have been six or seven or eight years ago, probably. Yeah. I think I was yeah. still on Gardening Australia at that stage. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a great event. Mm. So, really worthwhile. Right. So, let's hope it goes well, ahead. And please do, if you're one of the first four in, mm. um, then you'll and get a free ticket.
0: Who knows with this. Life, we're all living at the moment. Regional Victoria might be opened up yeah. at that date. So, it be. Will be well worth Give us a call if you are interested in those tickets. There are four available uh, 94190155. I'll give that out again. 94190155. If you would like those tickets and yeah. a free rose plant for the Yay uh, Garden Expo. Right. All right, so let's open up the lines. If anyone would like to come in, call in and have a chat to us, ask us any questions or tell us what you're doing this lockdown in your garden. Uh, 9419 0155. The off-air line is 9419 Now, we have many ways of contacting and communicating <laughs> yes, with us, so I'm going to give is. out two more options as well. The text line is open today as well, and that is 0488 809 Please put all of those numbers in your ta- contacts <laughs> list of your phone so you can put us on speed dial when yes. you call us up. <laughs> yeah, it will be a lot easier. We do have an email as well. Um, if anyone has any questions, I know there's a lot of podcast listeners out there that don't listen live and can't mm-hmm. call in when we're all in the sh- in the studio. So email is 3 gardening at gmail.com. Yeah,
1: good. All right. Well, that gives people a lot of different ways to get yes. in touch with us. So anyway, so
0: give us a call and say hello, and we can troubleshoot your gardening problems or have a chat. Yeah. Plant names. Yes, I love plants. We names. do love our plant names. For for plant nerds, it's like the finest topic in the world. Yeah, it is. But for non garden plant people it seems like the most challenging uphill battle. Yeah, it's a mystery to to the average home gardener. They love their
1: common names and and they fight to hold on to them and all that sort of thing. And um, there are some common names that have good parlance. I mean, they're well accepted over a broad range. Mm. I mean, if somebody says foxglove, you sort of know what they're talking Mm. about or Mm. forget-me-not or, you know, there are some old-fashioned garden plants that have acquired a common name that has become... Regularly used.
0: And useful. And, and universal, and useful. So, yeah. so you and
1: actually universal. know what are talking about. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure if you translate foxglove into German, they'd probably still know what you're talking about mm. because they'd probably call it much the same thing in mm. German. So, you know, so some common names can be really useful, but a lot of common names are absolutely pointless, except <laughs> in your own home garden. Yeah. You know, so Auntie Maud's Pink will only work <laughs> in your garden. So, you know, so there are some common names that are just so um, uh, parochial and close to home that, yeah, they'll well, worse still is home.
2: this one common name for four plants. Well, exactly. Maybush. Oh, yeah. Which is Mabel. The yeah. Yep. You know, there's so many different maybush. Yeah. can be
0: attributed to like three Lillie. different species. Yeah.
2: Lilies, what, covers about 90% oh, of all yes. plants. Oh, I've got this lily people <laughs> saying, you yes. go, all right, well, which lily are we talking <laughs> yeah. about?
1: Is it lilies of the valley? <laughs> is it an Arab lily? lily? It's
0: a pink lily. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so common names really have lots of limitations, and certainly you can't use them if you're going overseas and you're talking to people in different languages. I mean, we need mm. a standard plant naming system. Uh, And and we have one. And we have one. (laughs) Although having said that, it's not as standard as you'd like at the moment because it's sort of in flux with all of the new DNA DNA technology going on. So plant names are changing a lot uh, and I have to say, don't take it as a personal insult. Uh, It's not meant to be that. They're just slowly and surely finding out the relationships of plants that weren't obvious when plants were first being named way back. Um, And so there will be lots of plant name changes that we're just going to have to
2: suck it up and get used to. The, the thing is, too, that the old name still works. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, yes. like if that plan, even if the names changed, the old name still only refers to that plan. Yeah. And it's easy enough to find out. That yeah. The name's changed.
1: And in fact, if anybody
2: wants to check
1: on plant names, and I have done this before, probably the most useful uh, international um, thing I've found that you can use to go in and check what the currently accepted plant name is, uh, is the one that Q Botanic Gardens in England does called uh, the, um, the, the, the the plant, uh, the plant list. No, plant database. Uh, no, it's called something else. I've got it on my phone here. Believe it or not, <laughs> why would I not have it on my phone here? Uh, it is called Plants of the World Online, ah. uh, and it is. I mean, who's going to argue with you if you use their name anyway, because you just say, well, Q Botanic I wouldn't argue with that's, you. that's good enough. Yeah, yeah that, no, that, that, I, do with, I mean, with there's some that I have reservations about at this point in time, as a, as a horticulturalist, not as a taxonomist, mm. um, uh, because I don't know how they're going to go into common parlance ever, uh, some of the name changes, because some plants are being split up in their genus, yeah. genera, mm. um, and so they're becoming lots of small genera. Other plants are being lumped in uh, with other genera, there's, so ho-
0: they're disappearing. We say yeah. there's two types of taxonomists, mm. and they're people that name living, name things, living yeah. and non-living. There's the lumpers and the splitters, yes. and <laughs> they will split... A genus into lots of different ones, or a species, or whatever, and then there are ones that will lump them all together. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yep. And and um, plants are not something that um, that in fact uh, fits fit neatly into little pigeonholes. No, anyway. there's a thing called evolution. That yeah, yeah. It sort yeah, it keeps of getting away. the edges. Yeah, <laughs> it does. So yeah, so I can understand how the lumpers and the splitters come about. But at least with the DNA, I guess at the end of the day, you can't terribly much argue. With yeah, once, once it's decision. sorted out, it's... Yeah. it's and yeah. so you've just got to get used to it. Uh, and I check regularly. Uh, so yep. uh, even... There's a, lot of,
0: there's a lot of nurseries that don't know, and that's why you get name confusion with botanical yeah. names, the old one, the new mm-hmm. one, because labels don't get yeah. changed. Well, I
1: tend to, where I find a name change, if I'm printing mm-hmm. labels, the next time I get them printed... I will tend to put the old name down as a synonym after it. So you'll have the new accepted name mm-hmm. and then you'll have SYN full stop and after that will be the old name. Mm. Mm. Uh, so I tend to do that where I know the old name is fairly well known. Yeah. Uh, if it's an old name that hardly anybody knows anyway because the plant's so obscure, I don't worry. Because yes. Over
0: time the old name will just does just fade away. Yeah. Yeah. But when it's still in fresh mm. memory, then you do need to have the synonym name yeah. there.
1: Yeah. Although I might add there can be confusion there if you look up the synonyms in plants of the world online sometimes there's some plants that'll have a hundred synonyms they do yeah <laughs> there's all these different names that could have been applied to that plant at some stage or yeah. another uh, and it's in a minefield of its own i mean you know which synonym do you select you know it's yeah. this huge list of them um and you know and some plants are still sort of slightly in flux i mean there's still some plants out there that they're not really pin down definitively um i did a little podcast on uh, uh the giant marsh marigold uh which is a, a thing called keltha uh, but the giant one has been lumped in with the small growing variety with no real acceptance of its differences i mean it looks so
0: there's physical differences physical but there's differences. no genetic differences uh, well so far that's what uh, I'm saying, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so Keltha polypetula is, uh, not polypetula, Keltha palustris, and palustris means of the swamps and marshes, if people are looking for uh, definitions of words, and that's yep. where... Botanical stuff comes it's in really most, useful.
2: It's the prettiest name for swamps and marshes too. I think palustris. There's yeah, something it is. nice it's about nice standing about that. Yeah, well, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I'm just going down to the local <laughs> palustris. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, so Keltha palustris uh, is just this sort of clumping plant with little water lily-shaped leaves and bright yellow buttercup-like flowers. This giant one uh, runs like a strawberry. Uh, Mm. And roots down as it goes along Mm. has leaves that are five times bigger than the normal form flowers at least three times bigger than the normal form and at this stage it's um some people are saying it's uh plustrous variety polypetala but there's another species out there that's polypetala and it's a little tiny alpine one and polypetala means lots of petals
0: lots of petals Uh, and
1: this thing has the classical five or six petals that Mm. The genus has, so there's nothing polypedalar about it. Yeah. Um, So the name doesn't seem to make any sense. And so I started doing this this podcast about it, and then I realised that there there really wasn't a proper name for this plant uh, as it stands. Mm. Um, So we went ahead and just did the podcast and said well this is what you might find it under you might find it under this name uh, but as long as you know what you're looking at mm. uh, you'll get the plant. So there's still lots of confusion out there.
0: There is a lot of confusion. Uh, the
1: same
2: thing's happening in the mushrooms as well where uh, you know if, uh, the DNA testing will show that a particular fungi's not in the same genus as what they thought it was. Mm. So they'll give it a name and then they'll do a bit more research and find that uh, no oh, actually it is in the same genus as that so we better change it back. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love I, the change back. <laughs> I do
0: wonder though with fungi because it's so diverse and we're only starting to learn more about yeah. it with the in uh, the invention of technology and as it improves. Mm. I don't think fungi, the fungi kingdom is going to fit into mm. Linnaeus's binomial it's system. Much trickier. Yeah, it um, is so yeah. it is I can't even begin to describe how diverse that the f- the world of fungi is yeah, well and those, those no boundaries plants. those boundaries
2: aren't quite there yeah. in the same way no. uh, and you know there isn't male and females there's there's some species of fungi that have wasn't this something ridiculous, like one hundred and twenty six different sexes or even more, maybe even thousands of it's just just wow. the weirdest things yeah. that do
1: and <laughs> for those <laughs> vegetarians <laughs> out there fungi aren't aren't vegetables. <laughs>
3: <laughs> they're not Just animals it. either. So no, they don't they're follow, not, they're they're not yeah. animal kingdoms. There's something so else. Can, Although yeah.
2: sometimes you get the feeling they're sentient. Yeah. <laughs> You do wonder. Especially the slime moulds. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, they're
1: pretty clever little buggers, aren't yeah. they? Oh, dear. So there we go. So yeah, so plant names can be difficult. Uh, there's some taxonomists who shouldn't be allowed to name plants because they're, especially those who come from Cyrillic-type countries where <laughs> they don't, don't have any vowels. How do, you, how do you pronounce
2: double V? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I <laughs> don't know <laughs> how
1: you pronounce double V. And there's certainly a peony out there that I'll sort of Stumble over it and say it's Um uh, Most people call it Molly the Witch because nobody can pronounce can pronounce the species name properly. So Polish and uh, and I guess a lot of botanists from that part of the world should never have been allowed to name plants, <laughs> at least from our Anglo-Saxon perspective. Um, and they well, haven't
0: used the Latin convention. Then they've thrown in a little bit of the Eastern European. Well, that's the other thing that into it
1: plant names. I mean, we talk about them being Latin, but really they're not. They're Latinized. Things. Yeah, mm. uh, and I there's mean,
0: Greek words flipped in there. There's Aramaic.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's and there's lots of words that are just the local name of the plant that's actually been Latinized. Yeah, Nandina is a perfect <laughs> example of that. Oh, really? Nandina domestica, the sacred bamboo from Japan. Um, Nandina is its common name in Japan, and it's just been Latinized. Right. Uh, and so, if an ancient Roman came back today, they wouldn't be able to say any of those words either, mm. because they're not Latin. Mm. They're Latinized, Latinized. things. Yes. Yeah,
0: Latinized. Latin yeah. hasn't been spoken for however, a 100 years. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, so, and, and in fact, we use letters in our alphabet that they didn't have. Mm. So, how would they pronounce that? So, these pedants who get out there and tell you how you should pronounce the Latin names of plants. Oh, no,
0: I don't know. Nah, no way. Nah. Nah.
1: I, I'm afraid I'm not with that. There are some, some things that I do stick to as a convention. When I was learning my nomenclature in, in college, um, I had a, a teacher there who said, if it's a commemorative name, uh, so, in other words, named after someone, pronounce it as close as possible to the original form of their name yep. with a Latin ending. Yep. So, hence, I would always say Clivia. Mm. What about Fuchsia? Well, you should say <laughs> Fuchsia. <laughs> yeah. um, and I can understand. that. I mean, you yeah. can become a pedant about how yeah. to pronounce these things. I mean, we should be saying Dahlia, not Dahlia. Um, uh, and there's lots of those out there. Marnia, not Mahonia. Uh, oh, right. Uh, although that genus is gone anyway. Oh, has it? Yeah, it's all under Berber's now. Oh. <laughs> um, mm. But, you know, so the theory is there, but of course we have conventions in... But if you go to Germany, they won't be saying fuchsia, they'll be saying fuchsia. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Because that's the Germanic that's the, pronunciation mm. of fuchs, the bloke the genus was named And again,
2: when you when you're searching for information about these plants, which is the main reason you want the names so you can look it up and find out about the plant. You're after the spelling more than the pronunciation because nine times out of ten you're going to... Be looking at a written word rather than yeah. listening someone talk and
1: about it, and that's the issue for a lot of people, Greg. That the fact that they see it as a written word, then they don't quite know how to pronounce it. And mm. They become yeah. somewhat um, t- tentative and hesitant. Yeah, and about unless
0: it. you train the muscles in your mouth yeah. to say those words, then it is very foreign. Oh. Well, mm.
1: you know, how how many people can say Medicago Metis- Metis- glyptostraboides in that's one? My
0: fa- I put that on the whiteboard when I'm teaching plant names all the time because yeah. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> big long my one. my <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: and and when you say Medicago glyptostraboides, oh yes, well there's camis. Camisipras, Lawsoniana, Imbricata, oh. Pendula, Which is well. one of and my favourite plants. let's just stop, have <laughs> a
0: moment, pause for a moment, and then you can say that plant name again. Really? You brought it in.
1: Yeah, oh, go no, Stephen can pronounce it better All than right, I. All right, go. cypress, which means false cypress. Yep. Lawsoniana, named after Lawson. Mm-hmm. Imbricata, which means it has fine sort of stems. Uh, and Pendula, meaning weeping. So the name actually means something yes. when you analyse what the name is. Now, Imbricata pendula is its cultivar name, which means it's a man-selected variety. So that's not a botanical name per no. se. But in the 1950s, before the 1950s, I should say, you're allowed to name a new selection with a Latin name. So you'll see a lot of plants out there like that with this sort of Latinized cultivar name so mm. it's a yeah, selection in of lawson cypress yeah, yeah. Uh, we, but it should be an in inverted commas imbricata in yeah. pendula which then means that you know it's a cultivar name and i think it was in about 1955 great year that that's when i was born um <laughs> They, the International Convention on Plant Nomenclature got together and said cultivars and hybrids have to be named uh, in single inverted commas, yep. capital letters for the first letter, and they need to be in the language of the country of origin. Yep. They can't use Latin. Mm. That way you could define a cultivar, something that showed up in cultivation. A,
0: man-ma- a man-made, uh, a man-made plant, plant, plant,
1: Or even a selection from the wild that's a different colour from the normal form, Yeah, um, uh, unless it has sort of status as a...
0: A natural hybrid. A
1: natural form or something or another, then they'd all be named with cultivar names. So if we produce something here, we would call it
2: Greg's Weeping. Yeah. Or... Oh, uh, oh, poor oh, Greg. Yeah. yeah. How did you bring it in? Yeah. There you go. Um, the classic Dick Sweeper. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a shamisipras, <laughs> a, a, a I think. Yeah, well, is it? This, this, this one
1: that Greg brought prince? in was a, 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 a... Well, I'd say camisipras because C-H should be pronounced softly, not yep. hard, uh, so it's one of the conventions that I will stick with. So I'd say Uh and this one was the cypress, which is um, uh, camisipras Uh But I believe that newtcatensis has been pulled out of, oh, of uh and it's in another genus, and it's something like cypress or something or another. I'd have to look it up. Yep. Uh, I can't remember. And this particular one is, again, pendula, so it's a weeping selection. Mm. But it's pendular in single inverted commas with a capital P. Right. So it would have been developed prior to 1955 It doesn't
0: naturally occur It's not like a naturally
1: that. occurred mm. thing it's actually a selected cultivar uh, it's a beautiful tree it's this amazing sort of weeping dark green mm. conifer It and looks it like a ghost It's sort of It is It's really slightly
2: spooky yeah.
1: uh, and in a misty morning like yes, this morning yeah, perfect yeah. way yeah. to look at one Beautiful Yeah so yeah. So plant names are one of those things that are frightening to people um, but you know would you go to a doctor and the doctor says oh, I'd take these pink pills because they'll oh, be absolutely. really good for your funny bone yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, you'd expect a doctor to use proper terminology. You expect almost anybody in a profession to use the mm. proper terminology for mm. their profession because then they look like they're professional. Yes. Uh, and so I do have have to give a brick back to any of those nurserymen out there that make up names that they put on labels. Don't put a botanical name yeah. in there or trademark some weird name that has no connection with the plant whatsoever. Um, and then nobody else can use that name. Uh, I don't think that's showing us off as professionals.
0: It's very unprofessional. Yeah, I, yeah. I
1: just, I just don't get it. Uh, it apparently helps sell plants. They think, um, but you know, people buy a plant once they take it home. Greg was right before when he said, you know, if you want to look it up and find out something about it, mm. you need the botanical name. Mm. If you go in and look up purple genie or some blasted thing you're not going to find the that genie from mm.
0: aladdin will come up on <laughs> yeah, your yeah that's right, exactly yeah.
1: uh asphyxiating probably because they've gone purple <laughs> yeah. um i just don't understand how anybody can think that's a good idea and if you're going to put those sort of fancy names on things always make sure the proper botanical name is on the label yeah. uh, in fact i would say to our listeners out there that if you pick up a plant in a shop and it has some fancy name on it and you can't even in small print find the botanical name on that label don't
0: by the plant. And the, what's the botanical name going to look like? So we've got a call coming through. So the botanical name is, it's two names. Two the words. Main, the binomial, so yeah. two names. And there'll
1: be the genus name, which yep. should start with a capital letter. Yep, uh, and be in spe- italics. And be in italics. And the species name, which will start with the lowercase letter and also in italics. Mm-hmm. And then if it's got a cultivar or a variety name, then they'll be in single inverted commas, starting with capitals, and they'll be in normal type. They won't be in italics. Uh, and that's the botanical name.
0: Yeah, and, and the way that you can sort of try to familiarise yourself with botanical names is think of um our name so my name is chloe foster yeah. if i was a plant my name would be foster chloe yeah it'd be the other way around the so other it'd be way your around.
1: family name would come first as yep. in foster yep. uh, and you're the individual in that um genus mm. uh called chloe yeah um and yeah that sort of works for people i think if they think through that way. yeah and
0: go out and buy yourself a damn good botanical book well we've had a you were talking about a botanical Latin name book yesterday yes. on the radio. Mm, someone's yeah. rung in and asked us what the name of Stern. that is. Stern.
2: It's one of my favourite yeah. books. I how, think how do you spell uh, it S-T-E-A-R-N-S.
1: S-t- Stern's Botanical. What's it called? I think, uh, I think it's Latin Dictionary, isn't it? Or yeah, something like Latin that. Dictionary. Or Plant Names for Gardeners yeah. or whatever. But William Stern. William, William Stern. 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 And now, I don't know that it's in print at the moment. And I know it's had many reprints over the years. You might have to hunt one down on gum tree or eucalyptus (laughs) (laughs) sorry Uh, so good (laughs) can't help myself um but if you can find uh, look any botanical dictionary will help yeah but sterns is a particularly good one uh it's got a really good selection of plant names in there so you can look them up you can find out what they mean who they were named after uh, all sorts of other useful information quite often if the if the name is explained in there. He'll then explain why it was named that way. So, you know, he and gives it you gives you
2: the different um, uh, uh, gender thing. So, if it, if, yeah. It's, yeah, if you've got a species name uh, like palmatum which is masculine, I think, yeah. and it, but it, it'll tell you what palmata means and mm. give you the other two yeah, so types it could of, of pelamander or pelmatus or yes. you
1: know because the names have to sort of match in basically between genus and species as far as genders concerned mm. and of course latin had genders but english sort of doesn't so mm. we find it difficult to get our heads around mm. that um, but yes stern's dictionary is fantastic so look it up um, i wouldn't be without my copy uh, yeah. i mean a lot of the names have changed but the meanings of the words mm. haven't so yeah. it's really useful for that. And Uh, and you
2: sort of, there's categories of names too so you can sort of learn when you see a species name that's referring to colour for instance after a while you get all those different Latinized colour names or ancient yeah. Greek colour names. I think in Elba. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and
1: Lutea and Rosia and all those things. Yeah. All so those colours are great.
2: The basic groups of those names, like colours fall into one, uh, place name. so where yeah. some where yeah. something's come from. Canariensis comes uh, from the canaries. if it's named That's after someone. Yeah. Um, and then the other probably biggest groups, probably the ones that are named after the plant parts, so whether it's got... Uh, lanceolata, uh,
1: yeah. meaning
2: lance-shaped. Uh, we could talk about this yeah.
0: for the rest of the morning. <laughs> and, and I love
1: the ones that have got no real sense of purpose but are just there, like the one I mentioned on my YouTube channel. There's a, a, a little uh, liliaceous thing from North America called Marybells which is really cute, yeah. lovely name, and it's botanically called Uvularia grandiflora. Now, grandiflora means large flowered mm. and, of course, a lot of those things are in comparison to other species within the same genus. It doesn't yeah. mean it's necessarily got a humongous flower. Um, but uvularia is that bit of skin that hangs down the back of your throat. That's your uvula. Oh, and my they've God. named it after that, <laughs> which I just love. Uh, it's just so inappropriate. I mean, I can see where they're coming from. It's this yeah. little lemony belly thing that hangs down. Sort of get it, um, but really, that taxonomist must have been having a bad day <laughs> well
0: there's um div- two species of divisia that are mm. in, um, native to victoria they The species got split up, and one of them's bigger than the other and i I, I think this is still current, one of them is called. Schwarzenegger eye and the other one is DeVito-y eye <laughs> <laughs> one's, and one's big and one's little and yeah. that's, that's the main difference twins. between them yeah, yeah. <laughs> the twins yeah
1: well there, there's an orchid that's been named after Darth Vader, <laughs> oh, Darth Vader. Yeah. <laughs> you know so so there's some modern playing with plant names yeah. which is sort of fun and it's and it's apropos at the moment but one wonders how well those names are going to in fact Wow, hey, who, you know, who's the going to know who years. Schwarzenegger was in another 100 years? Who
0: knows? Guys, yeah. we must. We have a call um, right. coming through. Um, I hope Fermi is still on the line. Good morning, Fermi. Good morning, Chloe. Oh, thank Good. you for waiting. How are you? <laughs>
4: Good, thanks. <laughs> um, I, I, when uh, you were talking about renaming of things, Stephen. Yes. Um, what do you think about
1: Andrew Symbian? becoming Colchicum. I have no problems with that, because it's easier to say and spell. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and they're very similar. Like yeah. they're, there's not a huge amount... Some of the androsymbiums I've grown over the years look very similar to Colchicums in a lot mm. of ways. So yeah.
1: yeah, look, I don't have a problem with lumping if I can see the sense to it. And certainly if they pick the easier to spell and write name, then I'm mm. well and truly on board. <laughs> and,
2: and there's a lot to gain from learning how things are related through their families rather than Mm. the genus as well. Mm. So learning what family something's in often gives you a really good insight to where those plants have come from in an evolutionary sense and how they grow and what their Mm. habit is and what sort of flowers they have. Um, So, and I guess that's sort of linking with the androcymbium because they're in that same family and sometimes those things that link stuff in a family is really interesting to learn Mm. because then you can see a plant that you've got no idea what it is, you've never seen it before, Mm. but there's something about it where you can place it in a family which gives you information straight away. Mm. Uh, So oaks, for instance. That does raise an issue, though. I believe there are far too many one-genus families
1: because then they don't help you Mm. as a family name. I mean, one that I was doing recently was Garrier. Uh, Garia elliptica, yeah. uh, which is, there's several species of Garia, but Garia is in the Gariaceae family, and it's the only genus within the family, mm. and so it doesn't give you any connection to what it might mm. be related yeah, to. Yeah. And there's quite a number of those monotypic families, um, and I know that they, they must be related to something. They can't have just arisen out of the dust and, and been there, yeah. uh, but it doesn't help you to pin things down. Yeah. So I don't know whether that's made it even worse, Fermi. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <yeah. laughs> oh.
0: All right, Fermi, thanks for giving us oh, okay. a call. We'll uh we'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, have we well, had anybody ringing about our tickets yet? Do we know? All
0: four tickets have gone. The oh. phone lines went ballistic for about 30 seconds. there. Oh, so fantastic. thank you for people for, right, for being patient. I'll I must just have to
1: remember to take the list home yes, with me tonight. Yes.
0: Uh, and I must remind people you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, my name's Chloe Foster. With me this morning in the studio is Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Greg Bolderston a bulb grower and fungi enthusiast. Uh, we have another phone call On the line and we must say good morning to Helen from Cheltenham. Hello there. Hi Chloe,
4: how are you? Good
0: thank you, how are you?
4: Not too bad. What can Um, we help you with? I have a fairly basic question. Um, We've got some raised veggie borders here in our backyard in suburbia Mm -hmm. and we put them in you know supposedly as no dig gardens but we're always adding compost and and things too them, when we're finding that the soil level's getting higher and higher and <laughs> higher um and what do you do about that? We're ending up with you know we try and spread some around the garden, and we've got bins full of soil, and it's a good is, question Is that normal? Yeah. Are we adding too
0: much? Possibly what adding maybe wrong? a bit too much. Yeah, you
1: could be it, overdoing it a wee bit. Um, it does
0: usually settle over yeah, time, yeah. and then you just top right. up as you need it. So you might be adding more than what you need. Yeah, yeah. I find the same okay. with my own
1: veggie gardens at home. I add compost when I see the bed starting to sink. Mm. So I try and keep in, in sort of sync with what's going on. Um, so if you keep adding and adding and adding without... Uh, waiting for the humus material to break down and disappear down into the yeah. ground below and so forth, as it does in time, um, then you're probably just overdoing it. Uh, and I would be more inclined to, instead of adding more compost and stuff to the veggie beds, uh, just to be feeding them with something periodically right. to make sure that that's you keep the I feeder. Right, that's um, what I That's what I So you mm. might be using, you know, your dynamic lifter or your whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. But... I'll just throw in a a comment that I always make about soil and remember that you're feeding your soil, you're not feeding your plants and your soils like you are, you might have a favourite meal but you don't want the same thing every day. So diversity is important. Yeah, that's great. Uh, So, you know, I might put down uh, some dynamic lifter one time. I might put down a little bit of mushroom mulch because that rots down fairly quickly. Or leaf litter. Uh, uh, Or leaf litter at different times. I might put down some blood and bone. Um, I might put down a variety of animal manure that I can get my hands on. Uh, And I might add... I don't believe there's any such thing as a bad animal manure, unless, of course, it's this issue they've been having with horse manure and broadleaf weedicide getting into yeah. it. Um, yeah, uh, so s-
4: we tend to add our horse manure and things that we get from the um, Mornington Peninsula into
5: our compost.
1: Yeah, yeah and that's, that's a um, good way of using some of those things because the trouble with horse manure is unless the horses are being fed in stables... They're inclined to eat a lot of weed seed, and so mm. paddock horse manure tends to be full of weeds, which means mm. you've then got to deal with the weeds if you put it straight into mm. the vegetable garden. It's so good for the soil. Yeah. Though. Oh, it's yeah. great for the soil, so and cool, I, I, I don't object to it. <laughs> uh, but if I could get bags of aardvark manure, I would grab it. You know, So yeah. any sorts of animal manure is fine. Just remember, though, that... Um, uh, poultry manure tends to be quite strong and slightly alkaline in reaction, so use it sparingly. And duck poo and around natives is, there either, is it? How
4: um, how much? I, again, I usually put it in the compost yeah. bin. Yeah. Um, but can you sprinkle some coffee grounds yeah. directly yep, on you the can. Vegetables? I, I bring just home lightly. all
1: the coffee grounds from the local cafe, which is yeah, an we'll old-fashioned black rubbish bin full a week at least, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes more if they're really busy. Um, and I tend to use it as a component of the mulch. I just sprinkle it over. Think of it as a condiment, not an ingredient. Does that make sense? So if yes, I was but, salting sorry, something, how much
4: would you put? You wouldn't put a whole bag on. Probably every just a, no. a handful
0: per square well, meter or something. Yeah, you you just a sprinkle of yeah. it like
1: you're salting something.
0: Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. a light sprinkling yeah, if you're going to put it's it straight on the flour the that room.
1: you're making a cake out of. You know, no, because uh, no. coffee grounds tend to become pudgy on the surface if you've got them thickly. Mm. Uh, they'll often dry out then and become water impervious. Uh, I mean, they're very good. Apparently, they've got a reasonable level of nitrogen in them. Uh, and, mm. of course, they're adding humus to your mm. soil. So they're, they're good that way as well. Um, but, yes, you use it like you would a, a salt and pepper, not like flour.
0: Great. All right. Thanks very much. All but the best, all. Kim. <laughs> Thank Bye. you. Thanks Bye. for calling. See you later.
1: I am. I call myself Jim a helps, net right? green waste importer. <laughs> net.
0: <laughs> I know. i got to process that. Yes, okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I do because I bring home the coffee grounds from the local uh, cafe. Yep. I go around to the local little IGA supermarket virtually every night and bring home all of their vegetable scraps and rotting fruit and everything that comes home. I then sort through that and anything that chooks and ducks will have goes into the hen house and they deal with that. Uh, anything that they won't eat, goes into the compost heap. Mm. Um, and the occasional thing finds its way into my kitchen. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Well, when, well, yeah, when they throw away a bag of oranges, they throw away the bag of oranges because there's one that's gone rotten in the middle. Mm. The rest of the oranges are I perfectly know, good ridiculous. oranges. So I'm hoping that the owner of the IGA in Macedon isn't listening this morning. <laughs> um, but, yeah, some of those things find their way into my kitchen. Uh, and anything I can't compost or that chooks won't eat... Um, for instance, say green spuds. If I can't, you know, I can't do anything much with mm. those. If I put them in the compost heap, they'll grow. Mm. Uh, if I put them in with the chooks, they won't eat them. Uh, so they go in my worm composting toilet system. So Everything gets eaten <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah I yeah. love
0: that system that you've got. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So,
1: so nothing leaves my place. Yeah. that's organic in one form or another. That's good. Yeah. And and it's not that hard to do. No, uh, you
0: do have you do have. Um, the luxury of space though to do it yeah look i've got an acre garden yeah
1: so i have got a fair bit of space um and having chickens and things helps because then you can recycle things in lots of different ways um but um you know even the things within my own garden i wouldn't waste Mm. you know even if i had a small garden i would find ways and means around using there
0: is and there's other there's things there's community programs that People can make use of these days if they are living in smaller places oh, yeah. where they can well, take share waste. If you're in an
1: apartment, waste. it's a little difficult to do your own composting. It, it, it is, it is. And
0: I had I had friends who um, lived in a little unit and they had a bokashi composter. Mm-hmm. Well, they used they when the bokashi got full, they'd bring it over to my place and dig a hole in my backyard yeah. in the veggie garden and bury the bokashi because that's what you have to do with it once it gets yeah. full. So you just need to get a little bit creative oh, yeah. and be willing to find something else to do if you don't have the space. Yeah.
1: I, th- I think the only issue I have with doing what I do is, of course, bringing home stuff from the local supermarket. You end up bringing home an awful lot of soft plastics and, yes. and all sorts of stuff There's as well. There's little bread tags. And yeah, the bread yeah. tags, and the, and the elastic bands yeah. on everything. So I separate those as I'm going. Mm. Uh, so I've got a big bucket full of elastic bands, which I'll find some purpose for at some point <laughs> or another. Uh, the soft plastics all go into a bag and they go down to the local yep. coal store and gives Gisborne when I go and do my shopping and go into the hopefully recycling container that's down there. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, well, I hope they do. I mean, you know, I've gone to that effort. The least they can do yeah, is make sure it I goes agree. to the right sort of place. Yeah. Uh, and of course, all my other rubbish gets separated. And, and my rubbish, rubbish doesn't go out all that terribly often. And and it's really mm. things that I couldn't get rid of any other way. Mm. Um, and
0: uh, it's not that hard. You just get into a system. You do. It, it's, it's just, there's minor habit changes and mm. it's It's definitely doable. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. I'm going to remind people that they're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I have Stephen Ryan and Greg Baldurston in the studio with me this morning. If you want to give us a call and have a chat, our numbers are 94190155 or the off-air line is 94198377 and our text line is – I'm going to give you guys something to talk about or think about before I put out the text number – uh, we've had someone text in, can we prune roses in wet weather? Now, the text number is 0488 809 855. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and now is about the time that you would yeah, want to prune your roses.
1: Yeah, now is a good time to prune roses, but roses are awfully forgiving things. I think they people get are. themselves too worked up about the mm. pros and cons of how to deal with them. Um. Pruning them correctly takes a little bit of finesse, but if you prune them incorrectly, they'll forgive you, mm. uh, so they'll
2: all in, come in back. More important things probably to get a good rose in the yeah. first place. Don't buy over-hybridised, weak, yeah. genetic things that have yeah, if you've got a good, strong all look rose the same bush. anyway. Just get yeah. a good, nice old, you know, yeah. one that's been bred properly and uh, has a slightly deeper mm. gene pool and yeah. a little bit more resistance to black I might spot add, natives. though, if I'm
1: pruning <laughs> roses... I object to it to start with because they're prickly and I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm pruning them when it's wet, that makes it doubly worse, <laughs> mm. <laughs> if, if that makes any sense at all. Um, there's nothing more unattractive than getting sodden wet, pruning your roses, getting stuck on them, mm-hmm. having bits stuck to your back, um, and with thorns in the top of your head because you mm. bend down to, to, to prune something. Do you find,
2: too? I remember I used to sell berberis when I had the nursery. And people would see the thorns on the berberis and go, oh, I'll never have that in the garden. But oh, yeah. they've got all these roses at I home. actually use that. I, uh, they say, and oh, it's prickly. And I say, have you got a rose bush? Yeah. And Berber- they say, oh, you yes, have got 50 rose bushes, they say. Berberis is like getting stabbed with a fencing sword. Yeah. Like it's just it, a goes in and out. it just goes in and out. <laughs> and it stays intact. A rose, rose like getting attacked by a feral cat, and it, leave, <laughs> it leaves its claws in you after you get attacked. Yeah. And then you get all, all septic and yeah. horrible, and you end up having this oh, horrible roses. thing you've got to pull out of yourself.
1: Um, it is funny, though, <laughs> because people will forgive roses almost anything, yeah. Yeah. but they won't other groups of plants. No. And I find that a really interesting thing. Ferrous sort of are bomb thing. proof,
2: and they don't leave little bits in you when they stab you. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost nice yeah. clean yeah. cut.
1: And I always figure, too, if you've got something really prickly, plant it under the bedroom window, it stops people getting out. Yeah. <laughs> Or Getting in, I yeah. know. Oh, I was just thinking, you know, it stops them getting out. You know, <laughs> as you get older, you know, you've got to have these other added things to keep right. them in. Yes, oh uh, dear. Oh, uh, all
0: right. Let's get to talking some about the oh, yeah, plants you guys in Greg, what have you got? Let's start. with Well, we have talked you. about a couple of. Con- yeah, actually, so we
1: talked about just the Talk about your last conifer. Yes, yeah, Because uh, uh, so that's one that it? really fascinates me.
2: And again, this is another one I. Uh, Actually, the plant I've got at home I would have bought off you probably when I was about 20, maybe even 18.
1: So how big is yours now, Um, Rick?
2: The trunk on it is... It's not as big as I'd hoped it would be at this point, but the trunk on it's probably about... Six inches thick. Yeah, I so a
1: reasonably good sized trunk mm. on it. And I
2: planted it too close to the driveway. Oh, yeah, we all do that. And yeah, yeah, we also <laughs> sort of like that too. Yeah, mine's too close to the driveway. And they never go, oh, the driveway's there, so I'll grow on the other way. They always go, there's a drive I'm going to grow onto it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. it's a big weeping conifer. It's actually, again, botanically, cedrus, meaning it's a cedar. Yep. Atlantica, meaning it comes from the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And in this case, this one is Glauca pendula. Glauca meaning bluish, mm-hmm. and it has grey foliage, uh, and Pendula meaning weeping. And it was discovered, the weeping form of it was discovered in France back in the 1800s sometime, mm-hmm. And the original plant of this is still growing in mm-hmm. a garden in France called uh, vallee Loup. Uh, in a suburban area of Paris called Robertson, which sounds terribly Parisian. Uh, and it's a national monument, this tree, uh, and it covers 600 square
2: metres. Mm. What? Yeah, that, so you basically... The branches, you can... When they're young, they're quite sort of flexible. So you prop them so up. So you what? prop them up and stick a little, you know, little uh Dr. Zeus Y stick underneath yeah. it to hold the branch up. And then... You know, 100 years later, it's that branch is now three feet thick and there's more branches coming on. If you just keep lifting up the outer branches, you can oh. basically well, this, create a this, shade house.
0: <laughs> does this particular tree in Robertson have a name?
2: Uh, not specifically.
1: Right. It's just the Weeping Blue Cedar from Vallée Loop. Um, uh, I've actually used it as a... Um, Uh, I don't know what you call it, that picture you have on your Facebook page at the beginning of your Facebook page. Your profile Uh, name? The cover photo. Yeah, the cover photo. Uh, There it is. That's the trim in Paris. Oh, that is
0: just stunning. What a habit.
1: Yeah, and... I first read about it in a a journal that I get from the International Dendrology Society, uh, this sort of upmarket group of tree huggers, um, uh, (laughs) most of whom have titled names. So you go through and there's the Viscountess of this and and Lord and Lady such and such. mm. And then there's Stephen Ryan. Um, And they had a picture of it going right across the head of one of their um, articles in their magazine. And I went, my God, I have to see this tree. Mm. Um, and so the next time we got to France, I said to my partner, Craig, we're going to find this tree. Mm. So we found our way by train. We went on the metro. Then we got onto an above ground train and we got out to the um, suburb of Robertson. And it was only about a five ten minute walk from the railway station to get to Vallée-et-Loup, which is just opposite the garden known as Chateaubriand, which is a well-known meat dish as well. Mm. Um, and it's an open, free garden. You can just walk in. Uh, there was hardly anybody there and you walk down this path and here is this tree about a third of which is hanging over a lake um like a driveway yeah and like yeah you yeah, yeah and yeah. you walk down the path and they've opened a gap in the side of the tree and the and the path goes through the gap in the side oh, of the tree that is
0: the best feeling and then you stand <laughs> under this
2: thing and then you can walk out the far
1: side wow and it is it just greg the, is yours that big <laughs> no no
2: no <laughs> but, a little, there is another night so another garden that i do some work in occasionally up the Mount mm. Ballantrae, which, again, would have been from your nursery. Oh, yes, they had There's one, one planted the of the garage. Yeah. And again, it's growing out onto the driveway instead of up onto the lawn where it would be out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, but really. the one good thing about that is that where it's planted and where the driveway is, is quite a big height difference. So mm. this thing looks like an enormous, uh, as far as the Cedrus Atlantic mm. of Pendula goes. It looks really tall, and it cascades down from this great height all the way down to the driveway, yeah. and it's quite, quite stunning. But they get to this stage where it's like, that's why I've cut such a big branch to bring in.
0: Because looking at that branch... Because I have to take it
2: off the driveway, and I'm thinking, oh, I may as well just... I have to cut that off anyway, so I'll just take off a big yeah. branch. Yeah.
0: Well, this is why I like coming in with you guys, because you, you're talking to me about plants that I, I don't know much <laughs> about. When you brought in that branch, it looks like an upright Yeah, because if you hold it upright,
1: except that the way the needles sit don't look quite right when you hold the branch up. yeah. You know, but, no but a species. But they're uh, yeah. it's growing like that. Like, <laughs> growing I don't know how you so describe down. it. They're
0: firm, weeping stems or yeah, something. It is. Yeah. And,
1: and they are quite firm. They become quite woody. Mm. So as Greg said before, if you manipulate them whilst they're young and soft, you can make them go up, you can make them go out, you can tie it in a knot virtually. Yeah. Uh, you can do almost anything you want with them whilst mm. they're young. And then they lignify in that position. So, so
2: once they're about two, three, four centimetres thick... They're just, they're, they're still rubbery, but they're. Yeah, you can't bend you, them. Like if you, you bend them, it looks unnatural because right. sli- it looks like a, the curve of a, a, an archery bow. It sort of, it doesn't sort of just hold the, yeah, it doesn't flex in a good way. It mm. sort of, yeah, yeah, it goes round. Yeah, so you've got to manipulate them. Yeah. But yeah. A,
1: a friend of mine planted one. She's got a, a garage face and she planted it on the left-hand side of the garage on that short piece of wall between the big sort of sliding door or whatever it is. And she's trained it up and across the top of the the garage door and down the other side. And she's painted the front of her garage purple. Right. A quite strong violet yeah. colour. And then she's got this this bluey-grey mm. colour of the and, cedar. And it
2: is, it's a beautifully icy... Yeah, it's, yeah, it's this really yeah, it cool It It's a beautiful colour, colour that cedar, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: ...so well. It, it, mm. In natural light, it's really something. Mm. Uh, but you certainly do have to plant it with some thought in mind to how big it's going to get. Mm. Uh, and... Although it's a weeping conifer, it's surprisingly quick-growing. I mean, it can put on
2: over a metre a year. Especially when it starts... Like, mine's growing exponentially now so it took it takes a while to get established and then once as it gets bigger it grows sort of faster Mm. yeah so yeah so it's a really interesting conifer and and the other conifers which i didn't bring but it sort of wanted to talk about were the um you always had that beautiful weeping larch that i think fell over a few years ago but that the 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 weeping larch is always a favorite of mine as well yeah and that's Um, a deciduous
1: conifer which does confuse some people Mm. because people think of conifers as always being evergreen Mm. Um, but the larch is one of that small number of deciduous conifers Um, are all
0: larches deciduous yes all
1: true larches are deciduous and uh, i have had customers who bought them in leaf and forgotten to tell them that they shed their needles (laughs) (laughs) and there have been a couple of disastrous things happen to plants like that because people think conifers should be evergreen so when their needles go yellow and drop off they assume they're dead, mm. and I've regularly. Or had they
0: think they need to water it more, so then it yeah. dies by overwatering yeah. anyway.
1: Yeah. So I've had people. What, uh, what I can't understand is why people pull it out and then come and ask what they should have done.
2: Because <laughs> um, they do. They'll pull it out and they come and say, "Oh, it died, and I pulled it out." Well, it's not so a bad s- tip, is it? If if you think something's dead, wait till spring. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I always
0: <laughs> say to, yeah, I always say to people like, just just wait a little while; it might yeah. come back. Yeah. Like, just leave it yeah, alone. Just wait till spring.
1: Yeah, like, yeah. and, and, and don't spring. over
2: mollycoddle.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, because as soon as something is not performing in the way you expect it to, throwing more fertiliser and Mm. water at it is not generally the way to go. Uh, So just let nature take its course, see what happens. Uh, I'm also a great believer, though, in, in not waiting too long. Because one thing you can't buy in gardening is time. Yeah. And if you've got something really sulky, really miserable, that's really not happy and you've done everything you possibly can in life to make that plant happy, mm. uh, then sometimes you're better to cut your losses because you don't want to come home to hospital cases all no. the time. Mm. Uh, I remember once having a call ring in here and it sticks in my brain like you wouldn't believe. And they had a camellia that they had in the garden for 10 years and it had never grown, never flowered, its leaves were yellow. Um, what should they do? And I said, well, you know, you should get a, a, an elephant stamp for persistence. <laughs> uh, but after 10 years, it shouldn't still be there. No. You know, uh, really, you just can't live with something that long and, and assume it's going to come good. And, of course, plants mm. that go into a really bad decline like that
2: rarely come good after such a long time. Yeah,
0: wrong spot. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. you better... It to shortens
2: their life as well, too, yeah. especially if it's a tree or something, yeah. or, uh, something that's uh, been sulking for that long. There's probably... a. Pretty serious problem somewhere. Yeah. So even if it does all of a sudden spurt off and grow into mm. a nice big tree, the roots probably tied itself in a knot or, mm. you know, there's something wrong underneath. And then just as it's reaching its prime, it tips out of the ground in the first yeah. windy And day smashes yeah. everything yeah. else around it. Yeah. <laughs> as yeah. happens in storms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the last conifer I. Again, didn't bring, but really wanted to talk about was the uh, the weeping uh, swamp cypress. The, um, oh, yes, the taxodium. Again,
1: another. Is it one. a palustris? No, no, it's not. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, taxodium disticum. Uh, and I'd have to look it up to realise what disticum means. Mean. Yeah, I don't yeah. know that one either. No, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to get home get so it. So,
2: at my friend Mary Bull's place, I yeah. planted one, which again, probably got from you. And the trunk on that is now probably close to 20 centimetres, and it weeps out in one direction. So it's sort of like it's, it it looks like a normal taxodium that's sort of melted and weeped over to the (laughs) side, Um, but in a really nice way. And it's in a floodplain, so I've planted it in a floodplain, and there's actually an upright uh, swamp cypress behind it and some dawn redwoods. Close by, too. Yeah. All deciduous conifers. All deciduous conifers. Mm. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting to a point now where it's a really stunning plant. it's yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's sort of like a melted tree. It, it is. Uh, it's not
1: everybody's taste in plants, I find, some of these weeping conifers. Um, but I find them really sculptural. Um, and I always point out to people that if you, say, got a big weeping blue cedar or something like that in the garden, it's almost like a vegetable fountain. Mm. You know, so it makes a, it makes a sort of, uh, feature plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not something you sort of just plonk in a bed somewhere. You've got to plant it with some sense and purpose. Yes. So that it then becomes a sculpt- sculptural element. A spe- yeah. Or a specimen.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So
1: it needs to be at the end of a vista or as a centrepiece mm. or somewhere where it makes sense. Mm. And if you've planted it where it makes sense, uh, then it becomes, uh, a piece of comparatively inexpensive sculpture for the garden that Um, that
2: grows and changes and you never know what it's going to be. So you can't plan for it to be a certain shape because... Yeah, it does. They just do their own thing, and and or a cockatoo might pinch the leader out, or a side shoot, and all of a sudden it'll grow out at a right angle. Or I have that
1: problem with the weeping sequoia denrue, which is the giant American redwood. Yeah. The weeping form of that, if it's not being tampered with, tends to go more or less dead straight up. Yeah. um, But all its side branches hang straight down. Oh. Uh, And there's one in Bodnant in Wales, a wonderful garden that's planted down by the stream at the bottom of the garden, and the top part of the garden you walk out and it's fairly level, and then there's this really steep drop down to the stream, and they've planted this sequoia dendron down by the stream, so at the top you look into the tree, and then you walk down to the bottom, and then you can look up up at the tree, and the trunk has a slight weave in it as it goes up, but the side branches just hang straight down, uh, and it's probably the world's tallest tree for the narrowest width ratio.
2: Um, oh, right. and, and I'm assuming they don't have cockatoos. And they
1: so don't have yeah. cockatoos, <laughs> so they've got this single trunk Evil thing. Things. And the last time it was measured, it was 108 feet tall wow. in the old oh. measurements. It's supposed to be the champion tree in the world of that particular tree. Yeah. Hmm. And again, I've stood next to it, and it is really impressive. You can't get your arms around the trunk. Yeah. Um, and I planted one. And mine looks like some sort of grotesque emu mm. <laughs> because every time it gets a good strong leader come up, the cockatoos come in and go, nip, drop. <laughs> and so then it sends out a side chute and then starts to go up again. Mm. So this thing has sent out shoots all over but the place. But it looks amazing. Oh, that's, look, that's it's sculpturally sort of, yeah, yeah, really yeah. interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But it's not growing in the way it would have grown uh, sand yep. cockatoos.
2: The mm. one at Forest Glades had the same treatment. So it, it's it, it got up. Quite a fair way before the cockies got to it, but yeah. then the cockies got to it, and now it's got about six or seven main leading branches that sort of... Yeah, go yeah. out yeah. everywhere. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, but kids love it. They come in, and they all make up their mind, whether it's a dinosaur, an emu, or whatever <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a really fascinating tree, and I saw one in Portland, Oregon. Obviously, no cockatoos there either, but it had decided it didn't want to go straight, and it actually grew like a step. Or set of steps. Uh, So it went up and then it went out at about 45 to 50 degrees. And then it went up again. Then it went out again. And so this whole tree was on a 45 degree angle, but in steps Mm. going in somebody's garden. And it was the weirdest looking
0: thing. Bizarre. And these are naturally occurring.
1: Well, they were just a freak seedling that somebody found. yeah. Mm. uh, And decided it had enough difference to the wild form Mm. to start grafting it and propagating it. Mm. And which, which it does. It's which is very different. Yeah, yeah it is very <laughs> yeah. different. And, uh, and, in fact, I've got a client on the Mount who's planted about nine oh, of wow. them just inside his front gate. It looks like the Ents have arrived, for those who are <laughs> Lord of the Rings fans. <laughs> uh, he's, he's got the most unique-looking front sort of entryway yeah. to his property with these nine or ten or whatever it is of these weeping sequoia denrins standing up there with their weeping side branches. Mm. Remarkable trees.
0: yeah. Guys, we've had a couple of – this is this is cool chat, but we've had a couple of text messages come through. Um, what's the best way to grow bok choy in pots? Uh, mine is going to see. That's from Francis. Mm.
1: Well, I don't find potting mixes terribly good for a lot of these vegetable things, I have to say. Is, do never, they make
0: them grow too quickly? Yeah, they and and in a sense, a
1: lot of potting mixes are too gutless. Mm. there's not enough oomph to them so if i was using a potting mix i'd also mix in some really good compost or animal manure or something like that i don't normally recommend mixing things with potting mixes because they're normally made to be used as is but in the case of most vegetables i just don't think most potting mixes have got enough guts because
0: when a plant goes to seed it's like a survival yeah thing. It's, it's, it's like it's i'm getting ready for the next generation yeah life mm-hmm. here isn't the but is isn't optimal for me i'm going to mm. I'm going to do my life cycle thing. Yeah. So it might need to give the potting mix some more. Yeah. So, so when you say
2: guts, it? you mean organic matter? Or yeah. Yeah. yeah I I the organic matter yeah, that
1: Yeah. I just think it needs some good compost mixed through it, perhaps with a little bit of well-rotted animal manure, particularly for leafy greens. Because they're really mm. gut, they're really um, greedy things, mm. and they like lots and lots of fertilizer, mm. especially um, the nitrogen. Yeah, particular. and so yeah. yeah, so I would you know I'd use your um, dynamic lifters, all that sort of stuff, work the ground up really well, let it sit for a wee while, and then plant your um, vegetables into that. Yeah, and I think they'll do far that, better.
0: That same goes for in the ground or in pots with that. Oh but, yep. yeah,
1: yeah, yep. any of those, particularly the Chinese greens, because they grow so incredibly quickly mm. uh, that you need to keep the nutrients up to them. Otherwise, they will they just go. Oh, this is so good. Mm. And run
2: up to see.
0: yeah I hope that helps Frances thanks for texting in um, Anne from Northcote says she puts rubber bands in her letterbox and that deters the snails so that's something you could do with your rubber bands Stephen
1: with all the rubber bands I've got there wouldn't be room for letters <laughs> so we, don't get, we don't get
0: letters anyway and yeah. if you do get letters well, a get bill, the occasional so I like, the yeah point. well they are nearly
1: always bills <laughs> yeah, yeah so, um, and that's about all that shows up in my letterbox these days I wish people would write letters again oh
0: I, yeah. I Let's talk about it after, yeah. after the show finishes. <laughs> um, one more text has c- come through, and I think that'll tie us in with one of your plants, Stephen. Um, can we please go through the care of halibores? Ah. Feeding, pruning. Um, last year, Lizzie's dropped little black seeds. Can these be planted when and how? All
1: right. Oh, well, that's, most of those things are straightforward enough. We'll start with the seeds. Um, if they've dropped seeds, they will germinate around the parent plant. Mm. Um, so you don't need to do anything, just let the seeds germinate and then you can lift up the seedlings and shift them. But if you've got a particularly good hellebore and it's growing in a be- bed with other more or less all-saran ordinary hellebores, they cross-pollinate. And so if you've got something like my beautiful double black one I bought along Show or off. my beautiful double yellow one that I bought along, Show which is off. sort of a limey colour, uh, they, those two are growing next to each other in the garden, which I love. I love mm. the combination mm. of the two. But I wouldn't allow the seedlings to come up mm. because they'll be mongrels. <laughs> they could be anything. <laughs> um, and so if you've got really good hellebores in your garden, I tend to suggest you cut the flowers off as they've passed and don't let them go to seed
0: Because the seeds do germinate quite easily. they come up in Yeah. Forest the Blade's hundreds.
2: got several acres. The forest of Blade <laughs> is the garden that
0: you work in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and
2: it's got. I don't know, they'd have to be... If you put all the hellebores in one spot, it'd have to be an acre probably closer to two. Mm. Of just hellebores. Of just yeah. hellebores. And they'd be cheap by jail. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the important thing, like you were saying before about... if So if you've got a hellebore that you really like and you think, oh, I wonder what its kids would look like, and you don't want it just to sort of self-seed under the plant, you want mm. to... Don't store hellebore seeds. You've yeah, got to p- sow them straight. So you collect right. them when they're just ripe, uh, so when the when the capsules are splitting and 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 the seeds are black, mm-hmm. that's probably the best time to collect them. But don't stick them in an envelope and put them in a drawer for a yeah. year because they won't. They, they they need to be sown pretty well straight Fresh. away. They're not something yeah. that lasts. And anymore. they like
1: to have that because the seed ger- um, ripens in the autumn. Mm. They like to have a winter chill over them. So you know, in their natural habitat, they'd be probably under snow. Under snow. Uh, and then as soon as spring comes on, whoosh, yep, you know. That, I mean, I've got germinating hellebores, even though it's really sort of mid-winter still almost, uh, but the hellebores are all starting to germinate mm. in the garden at home. Yeah, I've mm. noticed that. They're all been germinating now too. Yeah, yeah, so they're starting to come up now. So that was last autumn seed.
0: All right, and then quickly, we've got a couple of calls coming through. Um, caring or right. cultivation of hellebores.
1: Hellebores get scruffy leaves towards the end of summer. So as soon as the new flower spikes start to come up in the late autumn, early winter, cut all the old leaves away. Mm-hmm. And that makes the plant neat and tidy. And it takes away any possibility of fungal infections and things which happen. And you get to them. see the flowers better. Too. And you get to yeah. see the flowers better as well. Uh, so take the old leaves off. Make sure they're planted in a spot where they get good light in the winter. Uh, they don't mind a bit of shade in the summer, but they don't want to be in dark, dark, dark shade. Uh, and they don't really flourish well in dry root infested shade. Hmm. So So not
0: underneath a large tree. Not
1: really under a great big tree because it gets too dry, too much competition from the roots. So they like light shade, but they don't like to have... um, um, really root-infested shade. Mm. And if you're in a sand belt, just don't grow them. Mm. They like a soil that's reasonably um, clay-based. and
0: Organic know, matter. Yeah,
1: lots of that sort of stuff. Uh, but sandy soils, even with the addition of lots of compost and stuff, uh, hellebores don't flourish. Yep. Yeah, uh, sandy soils are a real
2: big one, I, I, yeah, I think. Yeah, so for, you know, something you know, something that I if you like. are in
1: the sand belts, if you're down in Cranbourne or somewhere like that, then you probably don't really mm. want to grow hellebores yep. anyway because right. they won't grow well.
0: Thanks, guys. All right, there's a couple of callers coming in. Just... Hang in there to those people that have called in. We will say good morning to Vic from Maribyrnong. Hello there.
4: Oh, good morning.
0: How you going, um, Vic? D-
4: very well, thank you. And you?
0: We're, we're glad to get out of the house. So good. <laughs> <laughs> <Lord. laughs>
4: yeah. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm wondering what you do when you buy potatoes or uh, onions and garlic and it still lies around in the cupboard and actually sprouts before you get to use them. I'm wondering if you can plant those
1: yes the potatoes certainly you can definitely the potatoes yeah they they could go in and you could use them as seed potatoes um no problems there whatsoever in fact once they start to shoot there's every likelihood that they'll start to go green as well and so i wouldn't want to eat them then anyway Mm. um so yes you could certainly use them as seed potatoes um the garlic if it's shooting means it didn't have a growth inhibitor sprayed on it uh so there's Every chance you could plant
0: that? If it's the right time of year for the garlic, which yeah. is well, you, late Yeah, well, it's a bit ocean. late now for planting
1: yeah. garlic, but you could still get away with it. And what you'd do is you'd plant the garlic cloves, and they'll shoot, and you'd use them as green garlic.
4: Oh, yeah,
6: and So the onions? you'd cut
1: the leaves and use the leaves as green garlic. Mm. Oh,
4: okay, okay. Any onions? I've got uh, the well, there's
1: good. no point in planting an onion yeah. back in the ground, because all the onion's going to do is send up a flower spike and die. Because they're biennials, they grow in the first year and then flower in the second year, and you crop them in the first year so that they don't get to the second year phase to then go to flower. So there's no real point in planting an onion bulb that I can unless you up. want seed. Yeah, unless you wanted to grow it for seed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then you might as well just buy a packet of onion seeds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't see any point in doing the onions, but the others, yeah, why not?
4: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fantastic, thank you very much. That's all
0: right, thanks, Vic. Um, we have another caller, and we must say good morning to Mim in Fitzroy. Good morning. Oh, good good morning.
6: Um, I'm just wanting some help here to restore habitat. Um, I put, well, I didn't pull it down, but anyway, I had a huge, huge rampant old ivy and it was on a 5 by 7 metre wall, and it had, to, it had to come down. But it, every year uh, when it flowered, it was just covered in bees.
1: Hmm. Bees you like ivy it. as, a, as, mm. a, uh, oh, as yes. a
2: pollen source because it flowers quite early in the season, so it does I mean work quite well. Still, uh, one at home still flowering now, and the other thing that really loves it, are European wasps. Yes, so. yes, <laughs> yes, unfortunately. <laughs> Probably more than the well, bees, in fact.
6: We didn't have those But um, then followed the berries Which, um, you know, birds liked
1: Yeah, but then and the birds unfortunately Will spread the seeds around So that's the issue with ivy Is the fact that it yeah. becomes weedy so Because anyway, the birds the spread So
6: yeah. the ivy's gone But it also was a refuge for birds Who were escaping mm. Or nesting Or just seeking, you know A cool mm. place in summer mm. So my question is I want to renew this you know these sort of habitat things that that were given by this plant. Um, so I wondered if you had any suggestions of what I could put up that would bring those bees back, that would have refuge for birds, um, and you know, not necessarily age but. For, but preferred native. But do you um, want a, do you want also, something a
0: climber to put along that wall again, or some shrubs? Um,
6: well, look, look, that'd be nice. But mm. you know, in the general backyard, is um, one for a variety of birds. You know, nectar birds and uh, nectar eating birds yep. and different birds. But also just you know, I notice that one comes and, and roosts um, where the ivy was at the side of the house in a little window, and I think, oh, before he would have had the cover of the ivy but now he's just roosting in the window. I mean, it was a lovely, it was a lovely wild thing, you know, and I would just love to get some replacement. When, it's did it's the the, when
0: does ivy flower?
1: I don't well, know. mine's still flowering. Yeah, it yeah. tends so to be the sort the of winter to <laughs> early spring flowering. Okay. Hmm. Um, so I'm thinking yeah. like
0: a native clematis, Microphyla, is flowering at the moment that has a similar flowering time. Yeah,
1: yeah. and and it would attract pollinators uh-huh. and things. Yeah. So you could use that as a climber, but it's not going to cling like the ivy did. No. So you'd need to put up um, some, some wire or. Um, Know, some some sort lattice of or lattice or something Lattling for it, it can to grab grow to yep. uh, and it would also grow mm-hmm. thick enough to be a plant that the animals could then hide in, the Mm. birds could sort of Mm. nest in amongst all that sort of stuff. So yeah, so native clematis is a possibility. Um,
2: Clematis uh, nepalensis, which is also flowering, and I noticed my wattle bird has taken to chasing anything else away from that clematis nepalensis at the moment. Yeah, nepalensis is
1: a weird... Is it from Nepal? Yeah, it is from Nepal, so there you go, using your botanical name. Thank you very much. Um, uh, But it's a weird climber in that it flowers in the winter and has these nodding green bells with purple stamens Mm. and it's high in, in nectar. I mean, you rattle the bells and you'll get drips of nectar mm. will come oh, out on your hands. Birds so would
0: love that. They oh, the, adore yeah. it. Yeah.
1: But it is summer deciduous.
0: Right.
2: Which is really weird.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: so it drops all It's also really leave. handy,
2: though, because you can grow it with a winter deciduous climber well, yes. in the same spot. Yes. yes. Two plants. Yeah, <laughs> so
1: you can. So, uh, And the other thing about Clematis nepalensis is it gets these wonderful fluffy seed heads like a lot of the Clematis do. Mm. And although the birds won't use the seeds uh, as a food source, a lot of the birds will use the seed heads as nesting material.
0: Mm. Where could one get hold of the Clematis nepalensis?
1: Well, I'd normally grow it, but I'm out of stock at the moment. Because right. it's been in flower for months now and all my stock is sold
2: for this year. Craig so yep. might have some at Gentiana. Yeah, Craig might have it up yeah. at Gentiana. So,
0: Mimi, you could contact Gentiana Nursery. Yeah. So, yeah, so I Clematis...
2: Can't. Sorry? Oop. We lost it. Um, the, What
1: would
6: the summer deciduous? What would you put with, um, with the Clematis? That well, you could put the
1: other evergreen ones or one of the winter deciduous ones.
2: Or if you needed something to cling to the wall, maybe pathenicissus of... Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Current size because they have a similar sort of flower to the ivy, where there's lots mm. of smaller flowers that seem to really attract pollinators. Yeah. And of course, the part and the, the well. have really nice autumn colour.
0: Mm. So that's the Boston creepers but, and the uh, Virginia, Virginia creepers. Virginia creepers,
2: and there's also
1: the silver vein creeper from China, which is in the same genus, and it's more oh, shade tolerant and, and, really and it has yeah. better berries on it mm. too
2: to feed the birds as well. Mm. With the yeah. uh, it's henriana, I think yeah. is it, that, that has these beautiful blueberries uh, clusters I need of blueberries, blueberries for people. No, no, but <laughs> the birds seem to. Uh, seem to, to like them a little yeah. bit. So there's a few ideas that and, and
6: Henrietta. then Henrietta. Yeah, Parth-
2: Parthenosis is
1: Henriana, uh, the silver vein oh, creeper from China um, so there's a few ideas in climbers and if there's room for shrubs well then the pallet is open, I mean there's oodles of native shrubs that would grow that will give bird uh, habitat and, uh, and also feed the birds, um, it's always a good idea to have something prickly Could you give me,
6: could you give me one that was um, but the little birds do okay. Um, but for the other types of birds, you know, the the um,
1: the fine beaked ones, the yeah. Well, if you're looking for something for the little birds, um, then something slightly spiky, like one of the grevilleas or maybe some of the hecas yeah. uh, or berberus yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or burrises.
2: Oh, yeah. But there's yeah. some beautiful little upright berberises because the flowers mm. again they flower late winter. A lot of the berberuses, yeah. so it's uh, it's flowering at a time where there's mm. not always a lot of stuff out. And they also get berries on them, which some of the birds might enjoy. A- and beautiful autumn colour if you get a deciduous one, or yeah. well, we, some of the evergreen ones have beautiful autumn colour too, and but they stay green. So. Um, uh, yeah, but some of the berberises are... Yeah,
1: So there's, there's uh, plenty of shrubs and, and if you do put something in that's vaguely prickly, it's a good idea because it gives them something to hide amongst. Mm. Actually the flowering quinces are another possibility, the conomolies, mm. because they get slightly prickly and they get very twiggy so mm. it gives good habitat for small birds. They flower at this time of the year so if any of the pollinators are out and about looking for something, they're in flower now and you can get white ones, pink ones, red ones, mm. there's a whole and range of... And something you
2: can give a really good haircut if it gets a bit out of control as yeah, well. that's right, exactly. You can prune <laughs> it to be
0: There is also a. I will will also send you to a delightful book by our dear friend A B Bishop on Mm. called Habitat, and it is on exactly that habitat gardening. So either treat yourself to a copy, or head down to the library and borrow it. It's called Habitat by A B Bishop, and it's got so much information about all the things that we've just quickly reeled off.
6: Thank you so much. that's the lockdown
0: sorted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> yes. Treat yourself this lockdown. You deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> okay,
3: thank you so Thank much, you, ma'am.
0: Right. Bye. Um, we've got another caller. We'll say good morning to Jill from Malvern. Hi. How are
4: you doing? Well, you're doing
0: well. Yeah, we've got I'm a few happy. calls. Everyone's calling in at once, all yeah, at the end. Yeah. Always <laughs> happens. Well, always happens. I've
4: got a story about nomenclature. When I was 12 years of age, we moved to Malvern East. And mum took us to the nursery. And, of course, she always taught us the botanic names of bloods from about five years of age. Good woman. Anyway, we had this joke. Uh, If we didn't know something, it was a Leshenolcia and Tonefolia. Of course, there's only Leshenolcia formosa, the orangey one, and the Miloba, which is the blue one. And people used to look, oh, they'd look at this child, uh, you know, spouting these botanic names. And I, I was doing Latin school as well, so eventually I became a plant woman like my mother. In fact, five out of five of us were, were gardeners, <laughs> and uh, and then I became, you know, head of the herb society for some years, and, uh, and then now, uh, yes, it's gardening as ever.
0: There so it's I, been and ingrained.
4: And Stephen, yeah, you should let the black, the black and yellow ones cross. And then you could sell them to to people who vote for the tigers in the football.
1: (laughs) I don't think I'd end up with a black and yellow stripy one, I I don't think, although anything is possible, Jill. (laughs) Actually, I have a story about plant names as well. There was a Du- uh, not Dutch, a Swiss gardener up on Mount Macedon years ago uh, Marco Speck, he's been dead for years and years and years now and if he didn't know the name of something when people asked he had this name he'd made up <laughs> that he would use and he'd add an appropriate species name to it and he used to call things a Snuggadootsia <laughs> uh, and, and so he'd call them Snuggadootsia Latifolia or Snuggadootsia Grandiflora <laughs> or Snuggadootsia whatever and the only time he ever came unstuck was when somebody actually asked him how to spell
0: it <laughs> oh that unstuck him surely you'd be able to make up
1: well he could have made up the spelling but then they would have looked it up yeah. Yeah. see if you <laughs> spout a botanical name to somebody and they don't write it down they'll have forgotten it two seconds later anyway <laughs> so it sort of doesn't matter and Christopher Lloyd always used to say I'm not answering your question unless you've got a notepad and pencil
0: yeah, yes.
1: Because if you write the botanical name down, then you've got something to go back to and reference. Mm. If the, you're told a new botanical name, and unless you're amazingly quick at picking these things up, mm. unless you write it down, as soon as you walk away, you'll have forgotten
0: it. You need to see it or you need to create that muscle memory. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yep.
1: yeah, so botanical names need to be written down. Yes. Uh, so if I say something's a snuggadootsy or on air at some stage or another, you'll know I've got no idea what I'm talking about.
0: Jill, we've uncovered his secrets
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: can you just tell me, Stephen, can you just tell me, why isn't, a
4: lip, why isn't Garia called Garia uh, pendulosa or something instead of elliptica? What's the elliptica Elliptica
1: means about? the shape of the leaf. Oh, right. And there are several species of Garias, all of which have pendulous catkin-like flowers. So even if you gave it a name that de- designated that mm. aspect of the plant it's not going to designate that particular species individually. So it's about the leaf shape.
4: All oh, right, thank you.
1: Yeah, and it was named after Nicholas Gary, who was secretary of the Hudson Bay Company and helped Douglas uh, finance his trips into the Pacific Northwest in America. So there you go. And he ended up with the family name as well of Gary Acey. (laughs) Always (laughs) comes comes up to money. (laughs) It's
0: it's the money to get something named after you. Yeah, or
1: or a title. If you're a titled person, you get something named after you. All
0: right, Jill, thanks for calling in. We'll uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you. Everyone is calling in. Everyone has woken up. Oh, well, look,
1: we won't get to talk about all our plans, but that's so (laughs) be it.
0: (laughs) Um, Let's get to... Uh, Sonia in What happened there? I don't know what I've done there. Mm. Um, that's all right. We had a text message come in from Paul in Abbotsford, asking about seeds and propagation. I'm a reasonable gardener. I struggle to get, but I struggle to get a good strike rate with most things from seeds, uh, flowers and veggies. What are some of your hints for seed success? Growing in pots first, or yeah, most things for? you're better
1: to sow in pots. Yep. Uh, I mean, certain vegetables are better in the open ground. I would never buy carrot seedlings, for instance, sake, mm. eh? because they're already got a root most, that's sort yeah, of twisted. Sort of yeah, stuff. and you wouldn't buy peas.
2: As so, so kind. was it just veggie seeds well, or seeds and, and in flowers? Yeah, so yeah. so if you're growing, say, bulbs or something that's a species, um, one of the really good things is to look at where that came from and when it flowers, and what the habitat is from. It's native uh, hab- from, where, you know, the habitat it came from. Mm. And so if you're looking at uh, some uh, crocuses that come from the, Medi- uh, you know, close to the Mediterranean somewhere, you know that, that basically if you stick them in a pot and put them outside around Victoria, they're probably going to have the same treatment. Mm. So they'll probably sow mm. or have the best chance of sowing. So, yeah, looking at the native habitat mm. is a really good way of like, yeah. figuring out when something might drop its seeds and And what its conditions might be. When you're actually sowing seed, don't bury it too bloody deeply.
1: People over-bury seeds. um, You're better to have them shallower than too deep. Um, The rule of thumb is that you should never bury your seeds more than twice the diameter of the seed. So if it's really fine seed, you yep. might be better to sow it on the surface. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and I generally use something gritty over the seed. I don't put the potting mix or the seed-raising no. mix over the top of the seed. I'll use very fine gravel or coarse sand.
0: Or vermiculite if you can. Well, I don't yeah, know yeah, you can you, buy that.
1: I don't know whether you can still get vermiculite. The only issue I have with the vernicu- <laughs> vermiculite <laughs> is that it's inclined to hold a fair bit of moisture Uh, because it sucks up quite a bit of water. Uh, And some seeds find that a little bit difficult. Um, So I would generally use things like aquarium sand um, Mm. or very fine blue metal without any um, dust in it. Um, And I sprinkle that over my seeds because the air can get down between the course of of the... And the light too. And often. the light gets down, yeah, yeah. yeah which sometimes which, is things which that a... stimulates germination. Yeah. So, And it also helps to keep weed growth down. Um, it's also inclined to discourage slugs and snails mm. a little bit. Um, uh, certainly discourages mosses and liverworts from growing over the top of your seed pans. Mm. Um, and also be patient. I mean, most annuals as in vegetables and flowers, germinate fairly quickly after they're sown. But some things, like crocuses and others, might yeah. take
2: months or I, even two years to col- germinate. I've, I read about colchicums that the seeds can sometimes take 18 years to germinate. And oh, I've good, had That's one, something to live for. I've had one personally that took 8 to 10 years to germinate from yeah. seed. And so you've got this pot that doesn't do anything for 8 years, and then all of a sudden a little leaf will come up in it. Well, uh, <laughs> I planted
1: some paris seed. 18 months ago, I'm hoping yeah. that late this spring the Paris seed might come up. Yes, Because yeah. it normally takes at least 18 months or so to, yeah, right. to germinate. Mm. Uh,
2: so some things you've got to be patient with. Yes. Mm. Um, but, the, but looking at the natural habitat is a really good indication yeah. of what that plant does in the wild. Yeah. And then it gives you an idea of what you need to do uh, to recreate mm. what it would have had naturally. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is, which is a good sort of coverall for all plants, I guess. Mm. So hopefully that gives you some ideas.
0: Hopefully that's helped, Paul. All right, we're going to try Sonia from Broadmeadows again. I think you're on this line. Good morning, Sonia.
5: Good, good morning, panel. <sighs> uh, I must say it's delightful to hear that you at least continue in this lockdown. It's very cheery.
0: <laughs> well, we're glad to um, bring some cheer to your day. Good.
5: Uh, what I have is a problem. I'm preparing for uh, an older. I'm an older person. And I'm looking for problems in the garden that may be in the future. I have two. And one is an ivy, which, uh, with, uh, it's growing fairly rampant. And the other is a plant which has grown at the corner of our garage. It's a metal garage. Uh, it's, um, all of a sudden, it seems to, over the years, the last couple of years, is spreading like a bamboo. And the roots are coming up inside the garage, underneath the concrete paving. Underneath the paving in the path beside it, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So, the two things: um, how how do I deal with? I'll have to eradicate the ivy because, and the seems to be behaving like a bamboo.
1: Mm. Well, without knowing what the plant is, it's a little bit difficult. But I don't normally recommend poisons for anything, if I can avoid it. But I would say if you've got something coming up between the pavers Mm. and the garage, the only way you're going to deal with it is to get some sharp secateurs and some basically neat glyphosate. Uh, I normally put it in a little squeeze bottle, and I put a little bit of water in it just to take the stickiness out of it. Uh, And you cut... And squirt, cut and squirt. Yep. So you go across and you cut them off near ground level and then you squirt the top of the stem as soon as you cut it with the, with the Roundup or glyphosate, whatever you want to call it. Um, just a little quick squirt on the top of the stem and you do that as you go for two reasons. One is when you cut a stem, it releases the tension in the stem and it will suck the poison down into it. And certainly if you do it as you go along, you won't miss any, mm. which is the other thing you don't want to do. Um, so if you cut and paint those, uh, that will whatever that plant is, it's likely to kill it. You might have an odd piece that comes back that you, you'll need to deal with later, but it's the only way you're going to get it out without ripping up everything and pulling everything out. And as I say to people who say, oh, I'll never use poisons... If you've got an issue like that, it's at least being very targeted, mm. uh, so you're using it in a targeted way, yep. uh, and you've probably got no other choice. Uh, there's,
2: there, those chemicals, there's good reason to use them, but the problem is is that they're not always used for good reasons. Uh, they so go and broadacre spray yeah, stuff with so, it. So using it like what you're saying is exactly what those things should be used for. Yeah. In, and, and I'd in, probably
1: do the same with the ivy. Yeah. I would go over it and cut and squirt with, with mm. Roundup. So cut it near the ground, squirt each stem as you cut it. Uh, and again, you may have to go back over it and redo it again at some point or another, but you will get on top of it and, and it's the simplest and least energy, uh, using way of, of dealing with such pernicious plants, and the ivy you certainly need to get rid of. I mean, ivies are classed as a weed, so we should all take some effort in eradicating the vast majority of ivies. Mm. All right, looks like we have to wind up. Sonia,
0: we have to wind up. I hope that helps, you and the all the best.
1: <laughs> I can't believe that our oh, three quarters have gone. That quickly. went
0: so darn yeah. quickly, and guys. I don't
1: think we talked about half the things we were going to no, talk we about. Wasn't none <laughs> of the plants, or <laughs> yeah, hardly any of our plants got a Guernsey. But anyhow.
0: Oh, all right. Um, thank you both for coming in today. Mm-hmm. Um, enjoy and look after yourself yeah. during lockdown. Well, you I'm gonna
1: just going to go and plant some more
2: of this new bed I've created. Yes.
0: <laughs> That'll be good, Greg. I'm, I'm picking
2: up a new dog today, actually. <gasps> it's, uh, a puppy or a, or a grown uh, dog? Uh, well, she's 12 months old. That's oh, cool. from the Australian Working Dog Rescue. Beautiful. Um, so they've got travel permits. And, yeah, and, and the last three weeks have been the longest time I've ever been without a dog, I think. So it's oh. been a... Yeah, it's really uh, sad when weird. you have an animal around you and you
3: use
0: them. All right, guys. Thank you to everyone and Rose Byrne and Karina doing the phones this morning. We really Ooh, appreciate thank it. Thank you. Take care, everyone, and we'll hear you next Sunday. Oh,
4: well
3: done.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.